everybody sorry for the voice crack right off the jump there uh thanks for joining the bat around today from the chesapeake employers insurance studio i am your host paul valley with me as always is my wonderful co-host zach goodman zach how are you today man i'm a little nervous i gotta be honest with you you know big game for the ravens tomorrow yeah yeah yeah. a little nervous i'm i'm not i'm not of course this time last year exactly 52 weeks ago today the ravens Lost. What was it? Twenty-eight to twelve to the Tennessee Titans. Um, I don't even want to know the score. I don't remember the score. It was, it was twenty-eight to twelve. Yeah. Um, well. It was um, not a good game, and I was more than confident in that game. I just look. This is a baseball show, and we're going to talk our, our our fair share of Ravens today, anyway. But uh, so we won't get too too into it at the beginning of the show. But I just think that Lamar has too much of a chip on his shoulder. I think he's going to proved to be the MVP from last year and take over that game. But we'll see how that goes. It is a beautiful and cold Saturday morning here in Baltimore. But hey, the countdown is on. 82 days until the Orioles take on the Red Sox in Fenway Park on April 1st, assuming the season starts out on time. And that is no given. Um, you know, this is a little bit further down my notes, but we'll just jump into it right now uh, since I just brought it up. Uh, it has, according to J.J. Cooper of Baseball America, the single-A and double-A seasons will be delayed this year. Um, the, their phases of, of spring training won't start until after MLB and AAA players depart from spring training, meaning these respective seasons won't start until May uh, and could run as late as October 3rd. Again, this is according to J.J. Cooper of Baseball America. The move's basically been made so that we can remain socially distant um, while COVID-19 is still going on. Uh, Zach, what does this mean? So, like, we all know that Adley Rutschman is starting his year at Double-A Bowie. Does that mean that he's not going to be in big league spring training? Or are they going to have him in big league spring training and then have him spend another month in Double-A spring training and then start the year? What's the deal with a guy? And he's not the only prospect around baseball that's going to face that dilemma, but he's the one that we're worried about. Um, what are they going to do with that? We, does that mean that we can expect to not see Adley Rutschman at Major League Spring Training this year? I think we will. And, and I know those invitations will probably be coming out very soon. But I would be surprised. He was there last year. I wouldn't see a reason for him not to be there this year. But it could mean that Adley Rutschman starts in AAA, given that you know AAA does start on time. And I think at this point it will. You know, AAA is so important to the major leagues because there are so many players to get um, you know shuttled in between those two leagues every year. So it is really important that that league starts on time as well. Um, and I could see Adley Rutschman starting there. It would probably be a little bit too much of a jump for him. But uh, you know, if Michael Elias feels that that's necessary, then it is. Yeah, I, I, and see, and see that's that's what I was wondering. I, I was wondering, does this mean that he starts a AAA? Uh, would would they say that your best talent in your minor league system is usually at the Double A level? Um, is he going to be facing? It, chances are, if he starts a AAA, he's facing guys who are four A pitchers. Um, guys like a Wade LeBlanc or a Tommy Malone um, or a Mike Wright who's pitching over in the KBO now, but g- guys like that who maybe are, are 
beyond the minors, but they're not quite major league pitchers. That that remains to be seen. Adley Rutschman certainly isn't the only prospect facing this kind of uh, dilemma here this spring, but it'll be interesting to see how it plays out. Again, J.J. Cooper announcing from, from Baseball America that the double-A and single-A spring trainings won't start until after big league camp is completed. So we're talking the first week of April. Um, the Orioles announced their 2021 coaching staff, so that makes the Tony Manzolino hiring official. Um, this is a really highly scrutinized coaching position. I mean, you you live by the windmill, you die by the windmill. Uh, quote that, put it on a T-shirt. Um, what 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 are you looking for out of Tony Mancilino? Is it Are you looking to see him be aggressive to kind of pull on the reins a little bit? Is this a guy who is a third base coach, somebody who if you don't hear much about them, that means they had a good year? Well, I think the Orioles, you know, they're getting better right now, so they're going to start hitting the ball a little bit better. And we saw Ryan Mountcastle, Trey Mancini, they're going to start putting up more runs on the board this year than in previous years. I mean, that's pretty obvious. So I do think runs are getting to be less of a premium for the Orioles, but they're still at a premium. They're still not as easy to get as you know some other teams. They're still not a top lineup in the league. So I think when you have a chance to get runs, you should try to be as aggressive as possible. I like aggressive base running personally. I like to steal. I like to bunt. That kind of stuff is always aggressive to me, and I, I really like that way of playing uh, baseball. I mean, it's small ball in a lot of people's terms, but I, I do think that he's going to be aggressive. Flores was pretty decently aggressive. Bobby Dickerson, the previous third base coach under a different administration, was very, very aggressive. And I just like that uh, that way of playing baseball. I think you try to get as many runs as you can because they are at a premium as always. Yeah, I, I tend to agree with you. I, I'm not sure how aggressive Flores was. I felt like he had some questionable holds this year. He had some bad sends, though, too. Yeah, yeah, that's, that's true. That's true. Um, there was a game... And I can't remember it off the top of my head, but I believe Austin Hayes was on second base, or maybe it was Iglesias. It was somebody who was who had a decent amount of speed, and there was a base hit to center field. If he had waved them home, he either would have tied the game or given them the lead in a game that they ended up losing. He puts up the stop sign. The guy ends up not scoring, and the Orioles lose the game by a run. I think it was that game against Toronto where they had the walk-off hit, and the, not the walk-off hit, but uh, Guerrero came through with the... RBI ground out to Chris Davis. I think it was that game. I just remember thinking, how do you not send that guy? It was a real Ruiz base hit in the left center field where there's no excuse for the runner to not score, and he just didn't uh, because Flores gave him the stop sign. Anyway, neither here nor there. Manzalino Seawirl is now new third base coach and the uh, infield instructor for the ball club. The, the move has been made official. Now, we still don't know who's playing shortstop on April 1st for the Orioles. Um, we do know who's playing in the outfield, but the Orioles are, are rumored to have shown interest, to be showing interest in a guy they were linked to last year. That's Yasiel Puig. Doesn't make any sense. It, it just doesn't make any sense. They have Anthony Santander, Ryan Mountcastle, Austin Hayes, Cedric Mullins. You don't know if Trey's going to play the outfield at all. Plus, Yusniel Diaz is probably coming up sooner rather than later this year if he can stay healthy. Same thing with Ryan McKenna, who might be the best defensive uh, outfielder in your entire system. And, and that's even before we talk about DJ Stewart, who got off to a slow start but had that six-homer week there in, in September why would the Orioles be showing any kind of interest, or is this just leftovers from last year? 
I really don't know. That's kind of puzzling to me, too. And, and the Orioles have an outfield group that is so saturated right now. They have so many guys who could possibly be players for them down the road. Like you said, DJ Stewart started to come on. You know that Austin Hayes is probably going to be penciled into center field. Trey Mancini's coming back. Ryan Mountcastle, Anthony Santander. So there's so many guys that can already play there. This is the deepest position group, so I'm not sure why they'd be going out and targeting that immediately. But I do really like Yasiel Puig. He's a really, really fun player. He's a really good player. And he'd be probably a top three best player on the Orioles if he gets signed. But I don't really see the Orioles wanting to meet his contract demands. I would expect he probably asks for three, maybe $5 million, somewhere in that range on a one-year deal. And I'm not sure the Orioles are going to be willing to give that out. You know, they're, they're conserving expenses so much right now. So... It doesn't really make a lot of sense to me. I'd rather give that money to a starter or someone who can eat innings down the road. That's just my opinion on that. Yeah, and and now look, you can have as much interest as you want in any player, but they have to sign. Right, exactly. You know, and I think that they're just... Yasiel Puig's uh, talents fit on just about any ball club, and I think that he would be more likely to sign with a team like the Red Sox, who are looking for an outfielder and are probably closer to contention. Even though they don't have a great starting rotation, uh, they're probably looking to get back into contention this year because they have all that money to spend. Uh, just because the Orioles are interested doesn't mean they're going to get the guy. They can be interested in the world. If you're not willing to pay pay the, the money, you're not going to get the guy. So that remains to be seen. I could see him DHing for the Orioles. I could see him you know, playing all three outfield positions, to be perfectly honest with you. I just really don't think it's going to happen, especially with the Orioles having this plethora of talent. Um, like you said, it's their, their, their richest um, position. Uh, in the system is the outfield as a whole. So yeah, I just want to make a note that it came out that last year the Marlins offered him a one-year deal. He turned that down, and then the Orioles also offered him a one-year deal that he also turned down. Then he signed with the Braves. He got COVID, didn't play at all. So that's yeah. where Yasiel Puig stands for right now. Yeah. So the guy, I mean, the guy hasn't played in two years. So uh, we'll, we'll we'll see what happens with him. I really, I w- for one would be shocked if he ended up playing for the Baltimore Orioles on April 1st. But, you know, stranger things have happened. Now, uh, Cole Salser revealed to Masson's Rock Kabatko that uh, he was pitching through an injury last season, the much maligned uh, former closer for the Orioles. He's still in the system, but he says he, uh, he sprained his foot, fractured some toes when he accidentally banged his foot into, the, into his bedpost midseason, says the injury caused him to overcompensate on his delivery, which led to a higher walk rate. Uh, Apparently, the Orioles were aware of the injury, so this isn't new, um, news to, any, to them anyway, and it's, they, they supported his attempt to pitch through it. He had a 346 ERA, 116 batting average against him, five saves in his first 10 outings. After the injury, 838, 316 batting average, last nine outings. Um, I, I, how, does, how do you feel about this? Do you think that this is a legitimate thing, or do you think it's a cop-out saying, I wasn't that bad, I hurt myself? Well, I believe it, actually. I, I really do, because an injury can throw a pitcher off in really any way. There, even a small injury, like an injury in your foot, can really throw off delivery. There's so many things that happen in the body when you're trying to pitch a baseball. So I can see any, any part of that getting injured and throwing things off. I, I believe it. He was really solid in the first half of the season, and then he really fell off. I mean, nobody liked Cole Saucer by the end of the season. There was nobody that wanted him still on the roster, but... You know, he's he's a guy who came from the Rays, and the Rays always really know how to develop pitchers. That's one of the reasons I liked him in the beginning. Um, and, and Brandon Hyde kind of threw him into a tough role that maybe threw him off a little bit because, you know, he wasn't used to closing major league games. He hadn't really pitched in many. He had only pitched in seven major league games when Brandon Hyde 
threw him into that role. So maybe that was part of it. Maybe the pressure of what he was was what threw him off. But I definitely think that an injury could be something that that maybe screwed a season a little bit. Yeah, uh, look, not to compare myself to Cole Sulcer, but I, I do a little bit of pitching in the leagues that I play in, and I was pitching in a game this past summer, and I was cruising. I'd given up three hits and one run in five innings. In my last inning, the sixth inning, I, I felt a little strain in my right hip, my, my, my planting leg, and I couldn't get the ball over the plate. I ended up getting my, working my way through the inning, but I lost command, uh, couldn't, couldn't hit the strike zone as frequently. And if you've ever pitched, it's a lot of lower half. It's a lot of legs when you're pitching. You were a pitcher, right? right? Yep. So you know, you, you, gotta have, you have to have strong legs to be a successful pitcher. And when you have an injury, whether it's your foot, your leg, your hip, if you can't push off or you can't plant, you're going to have a hard time throwing strikes. So I, for one, believe Cole Salser, and, I, and I, I think that, you know, I don't think he should be thrust back into that closing role, but I do believe that if he hurt his foot like he says he did, that it made it probably very difficult for him to pitch effectively in 2020. And I was excited when they, when they signed him in the offseason last year because the guy had success in the minors, had success uh, at the major league level with the Rays, albeit in a small sample size. I think it was just seven games. Um, so I was excited that he could be a potential back-end arm for the Orioles. Maybe that still remains the, uh, the case. Uh, but it'll be interesting to see if that really was why he struggled so mightily the second half of last year. Well, if we remember when Trey Mancini ran his knee into the wall, he was mm-hmm. never the same after that moment. He was hitting around 300. He had probably 15 home runs by that point in the season. He runs his knee into the wall, and it really ruined his season. I, well, I, he I, did that in April. There's no way. Was it, it April? He did it in April. I, I, I thought it was June, but no. okay. Yeah, he did it. I mean, he was off to a hot start. He was, he was off to a hot start. Ended up hitting like 224 in the first half of the yeah. season. Um, that, was, that was the year that he said that during the All-Star break, he went and spent the entire All-Star break with Mo Gabba. Yep. Um, gave him perspective, and he came back, and he hit, I think it was 279 with 15 home runs in the second half of the season um, to salvage a, a otherwise lost season for Trey. So, yeah, you, baseball, just like any sport, your lower half, your legs – you need your legs, you need them healthy, you need them fresh, you need them strong. And if you have any kind of significant leg injury, whether it's, like I said, a hip flexor or a banged up knee or a broken foot, it's going to be hard to play. You know, So we'll see if Cole Sulzer can bounce back. Now, the Mets, they're looking to bounce back. And they made a big trade yesterday, uh, trading for Francisco Lador and Carlos Carrasco. And they sent over... Uh, prospects Josh Wolf, Andres Jimenez, uh, shortstop Ahmed Rosario, and Isaiah Green were sent in return. Did Cleveland get enough? I don't feel like they did. No, I don't feel like they did either. I, there was an executive that was that went unnamed but uh, had a quote saying, they absolutely got robbed, and everyone there should be fired at the Indians for accepting this trade. It, it's not a good trade. I mean, Carlos Carrasco was fantastic this year in a small sample size, of course, and Francisco Lindor is an all-world superstar shortstop who you just don't really find. I mean, these guys come very seldom across the league. Francisco Lindor is going to be an all-time great if he stays healthy. Yeah, um, he's arguably a top three shortstop in the game. Um, uh, Definitely top five. Then Carlos Carrasco, he's been solid his entire career. He fought through cancer a couple couple years ago, came back, has pitched very effectively before that, and since that, the Indians gave up a top shortstop in the game, and a mid-rotation piece for literally a bag of baseballs. It's it's to me, it just doesn't seem like they got enough. Now, 
We've seen blockbuster trades this offseason uh, with this move along with the Darvish and Snell trades by the by the uh, Padres, at which we're going to talk about that a little bit later in an interview with Tony Gwynn Jr. today. Um, and we've, we've seen Charlie Morton sign and James McCann, but the, the free agent dominoes really have not fallen. The, the, none of the top, top um, free agents have signed yet. Are we going to start to see these dominoes start to fall, or are we looking into spring training before guys start signing? Well, I remember a few years ago when Bryce Harper and Manny Machado were the two big free agents of the class, and they were both looking for around $300 million. It took them a long time to sign. People wanted them all throughout you know, January and December and, and the months previous to that, and they finally signed pretty close to spring training. It was pretty late in the year for both of them, and they noted both of them noted that these teams just weren't really making offers to them. A lot of guys in these free agent classes as of late just aren't getting that many offers or offers they really would like to sign with. So, you know, these offers, it seems like from teams are coming later and later every year, and teams are assessing their needs later down the road and kind of just trying to see what they have, you know, and not acquiring a guy in December that, you know, is, is going to be ready for spring training. But the Orioles did that with Nelson Cruz very late in the year. They signed him in, uh, in basically in spring training. Same with Delman Young. So, you know, it, it can work out in some cases, but I think teams are just trying to sign guys later and later every year. It just seems that way to me. Yeah, it, it really does. Maybe they're trying to, lo- to lower the price this year especially. Yeah. Because all these teams lost millions and millions of dollars in revenue by not having fans in the stands, only playing 60 games last year. Um, they want the players to get desperate, essentially. Yeah, is, is what it seems like. It, it, exactly, exactly. And you don't you don't want to pay more money than you have to pay. And I, I don't know. I mean, once things get back to normal, and we have no idea. Just because there's a vaccine right now, that doesn't mean that we're getting back to normal here in the next few months. We have no idea when things are going to get back to normal. When there's going to be fans in the stands. When we're going to be able to play a full major league season again. Um, we're hoping this year, but again, we have no idea. They've already delayed the minor league season, so. It's just one of those things where they're hoping that, look, these guys, if we wait them out, they're going to be willing to take much less just to get that money and get a short of being you know, paid and being on a team. We got a, we got a big show uh, for everybody today from the Chesapeake Employers Insurance Studio. Rest of the show today, we have Stay in the Fan Charles for his normal segment coming up in just a couple of minutes at 1020. Eric Arditi, big-time friend of the show um, from Barstool Sports at 1050. We have Orioles banter, the top five seasons in the Orioles history coming up at about 1115, 1120. Uh, then we have a pre, we had the pre-record with Tony Gwynn Jr., who sounds exactly like his father, by the way. Uh, we're going to play that for you at 1135. And then we're going to close the show with the Ravens-Titans playoff preview. Ravens big... Uh, rematch in the playoffs exactly 365 days after they lost to the Titans in the divisional round last year. Still too soon. <coughs> it is. Still, still too soon, as you said. So uh, while I get stay on the line, Zach's going to sound off. Were you been sounding off with Zach Goodman? All right, so this week I'm going to talk about a guy named Brian Harkins uh, who used to work for the Angels and was fired last March after distributing illegal substances to many pitchers. So these substances weren't really described, but you would have to assume it's some sort of pine tar that he made himself. And, you know, pine tar is obviously illegal for pitchers to use. It's only legal on the handle uh, of, of hitters' bats. So you can't give that stuff out. And obviously it's, it's not legal for these pitchers to use. It helps gain grip on the ball. It can help them throw better curveballs, better sliders. It makes a huge difference when you're a pitcher and you have pine tar. And he claims that 
these are the pitchers that have used his substance, and it's Troy Percival, Brendan Donnelly, Tyler Chatwood, Kevin Jepson, Cam Bedrosian, Kenyon Middleton, Yusmero Petit, Luke Bard, Matt Andreese, Dylan Peters, Jose Suarez, and former Oriole Dylan Bundy, and he claims similar substances are used by Garrett Cole, Justin Verlander, Adam Wainwright, Corey Kluber, King Felix. They've all used these, these pine tar similar substances to you know basically throw better breaking balls, and he is not 100% you know, reputable. This is a guy who got fired for doing this, but we don't know if any of the names he's put in this report that's going to court soon, we don't know if they're actually really people who did it. We don't really know these pitchers actually did this, but we may find out soon. He's now suing the Angels and MLB for defamation. They're saying, he, he's saying really, they used him as a scapegoat for cheating, but if it's found that any of these pitchers are using these sort of substances to get better and to throw better breaking balls, I absolutely think they should be treated just like PEDs and be suspended for 80, 160 games, somewhere in that range. So we're going to have to see if any of these pitchers are proven to have used the substance, but kind of an interesting report and makes you think a little bit more about you know, just the, the honesty in these pitchers. What's that old saying, if you ain't cheating, you ain't trying? I just... Whatever, you know, like, like and that's not to minimize your, your sounding off segment. It's a, it's a good sounding off segment. It's just like, fair co- enough. Co- color me shocked. Somebody in Major League Baseball is trying to cheat again. No way. It's only been going on since the game was invented in the mid 1800s. Like, look, it's a fair if, argument. If if you get caught using an illegal substance, you're an idiot. You're a jackass. You probably deserve to get caught because you're not hiding it well enough. So many people have done this in the past. We saw it with um, yeah. Luis Severino with the Yankees a couple of years back. Clearly had a substance on his arm, on his hat. It's been a thing for as long as I've been around. So to me, this isn't new. So it's because this Brian Harkins created his own new substance uh, to, to do it. Like, whatever. Like, if you get caught, you deserve to get caught. If you feel like you need that extra advantage, well, then you can't really bitch about the Astros players banging on trash cans to to hit your pitches if you're using sticky substances to get better grip and have more sink on the ball. I want to get Stan's opinion on this. Stan, how are you today? Good, and I don't think that was Luis Severino with the Yankees. It was Michael Pineda That's what was seven that. years yeah. ago. He had it on his neck. Thank you for the uh, correction. This has been this has been going on like forever, and yeah, yeah. Uh, there's there's one aspect to it. A baseball is very hard to grip, whether it's you're throwing a breaking pitch or a fastball. And I'd rather have I'd rather have pitchers be able to have a good grip on the baseball rather than stand up there and and let that ball slip at 97 miles an hour. Yeah, um, I, I get that. Uh, and also, uh, Zach. I mean, it's a, it's a good topic to bring up. I just I'm I'm not totally in agreement that it really should be viewed as cheating. Um, they let they let the the, the hitter uh, pine tar up, don't they? That's not right. all the way up to the end of the bat. Right, but, not uh, not on the barrel, but on the handle. Yeah, yeah, but on the handle. So I mean, it's a it's a game of of exactitude, and and you know a, a millisecond, a milli inch is all the difference in the world, and they let the batters have an advantage by gripping. Uh, I'm, I'm in favor, actually, of coming up with a substance that everybody can kind of agree on uh, that 
that could be used. You know, and that's sort of why they they rub the balls in mud a little bit is to take a little it's to take a little bit of the shine off, but it also greens it up a little bit. But uh, this has been going on forever. And it'll always be going on. Oh, absolutely. And, and look, if, if you're going to have something that helps you grip the ball when you're pitching in October and it's 39 degrees outside at game right. time and you need help getting the, to be able to throw the ball over the plate, by all means. Now, if you're putting right. a substance on the baseball, if you're scuffing it with a razor blade or putting some spit on it that's going to make the ball drop an extra six inches, that I can see having a problem with. But as long, But if it's just something that's helping you grip a baseball when it's cold out, you know, yeah. have at it. Like you, is, like you said. Let me ask one question: Is this guy was he was he supposedly let go because of this, or is he one of the guys that was supplying the the pitcher with his uh, oxycotton? No, he was let go because of this. Is the this, report yeah, okay? And now he, right. he's going to court very soon. It sounds like yeah. the twenty first. Yeah. He'll be in court and talking about this. And all of this information is basically just coming from the report he's submitting. So right, okay. Yeah. Uh, it, well, I, I believe the report that, that he has about Garrett Cole, you know, reaching out to him, uh, even though he's not, you know, Cole was with other teams, but reaching out to him, thinking this guy's really concocts a nice substance. It's not too sticky, you know. But the, the funniest one was the Pineda thing. I mean, that was unbelievable. It was had, it was so he had obvious. That huge gob on his like on his neck yeah. or something. Yeah, like it, it was yeah. so obvious. And it wasn't the first time that he had been caught using this stuff too. Right. So, right. Um, right. Now, somebody who could have used help with it with gripping the baseball and throwing some pitches was Cole Salser in uh, 2020. Yep. Did not have a good year, and then it comes out in Rock Kabako's uh, blog post from the other day that Cole said he was pitching with a foot injury. Uh, the second uh, mid season in 2020 said that he banged his foot into his bedpost and fractured and sprained some toes, and that that really um, affected his mechanics due to overcompensation. Stan, had you heard this, and does this make sense for why he struggled so mightily the second half of the year? Uh, it makes some. It makes some sense. Uh, that that it's a possibility, you know. I never heard this, but it was it was kind of odd. He sort of had pitched really well in original spring training, and then he pitched well at the summer camp, and then he sort of quickly rose up, you know, became the closer. And it's almost like as soon as he got the job as the closer, he st- he couldn't control. He uh, talk about gripping the baseball, yeah. He suddenly sort of lost his control and command. Is it possible this is what happened? Yeah, uh, it's possible. It's also possible he's making up some type of excuse that sounds plausible. You know, I I don't know. I have no reason to believe he would lie about it. But, uh, you know, a lot of times performers in sports don't, don't let you in, you know, as to what's really happening. And then... We only hear about it after they weren't successful. Yeah, it's it's fair to suggest that, Stan, because you know you come out there, they, they hand you the closer's role, you fail at it, you're a professional athlete. Maybe you want to come up with every excuse in the book because it can't possibly have just been that you were an ineffective pitcher. Yeah, yeah. So. yeah. Now, or, you, or you're the president of the United States and you lose you know, by 7 million votes and you try and come up with any excuse how you won the race, you know? Yeah, it's it's yeah. it's crazy what's going on in in sports and in the world today. Yeah. Um yeah. Yeah. Now now Stan, 
We've been talking about this pandemic for almost a year now. We've been living through it for almost a year now, um, mm-hmm. and it's still impacting the game. Well, J.J. Cooper for Baseball America just announced that double a, the double-A and single-A seasons will be pushed back this year. Um, they're not going to start double-A and single-A spring training until after big league camp breaks. So, right. Uh, so we're talking the first week of April before the, the two lower levels of the minor leagues really get going. That's um, in the best case scenario. That's, yes, that's if Major League Baseball actually starts spring training on time and and breaks camp March twenty sixth. Now, you know, what's gonna what's gonna happen to A ball and Double A if even if I'm off by fifteen or twenty days, if spring training doesn't start till March twentieth and they don't break until April thirteenth or something like that, is that when uh, you know the minor leagues A ball and Double A are going to go to camp? You know, and that, so. that's what that's what Cooper's reporting, and he's saying that that means that the, that the single A and double A um, seasons won't start till May, and that the season yep. could be pushed back until October third, a month later than usual. Is this a right. move that you agree with to keep to keep baseball as socially distant and as safe as possible during a pandemic? Um, I, I I I think I agree with it, but the the moving of things backward just seems to me like it's an excuse for not hurrying. Uh, through the negotiations, you know, um, I, I just, uh, you know, I, I have my really grave doubts. I, I'm, I'm hearing these little voices saying, you know, hey, we're going to start baseball on time, you know, Major League Baseball. We're planning to go to spring training in time. I, I don't I don't get where they're going to to do that. Uh, I'm still sticking with my scenario that baseball starts sometime major league baseball starts sometime in may sam would you support uh major league baseball kind of expediting vaccines to all their players so that this show could really get back on the road and these players could feel safer and be safer at the ballpark well i i, I honestly think the issue with what's holding going to hold up baseball isn't is not the players themselves being at risk because the bubbles kind of work as long as you follow the protocols uh, those those bubbles or, or all the protocols are designed by medical professionals. I don't find that to be the the fly in the ointment to get baseball back on the field in time. I think it's the fact that that the economics are saying we're not going to be able to get enough people in the stadiums to create that revenue stream that's going to allow teams to have 120 and 150 million dollar payrolls. Um, you know, I, I'm still stuck on that. You know, it's uh, the old saying that Al, the late Alex Hawkins, when he was arrested at 2 o'clock in the morning, uh, he came up with an excuse that he wasn't breaking the law, and he said, that's, that's my story and I'm sticking to it. <laughs> um, I, I think that baseball's got a revenue stream problem. Uh, that's, that's what's going to delay baseball, not not for fear of the players getting sick. It's that people are not going to be going to stadiums until they're vaccinated and they're comfortable with the people that are sitting around them are vaccinated. So well, with, uh, uh, it's going to take, it's, to me, it's going to take a while. With with professional sports, that's what it always comes down to is the almighty yeah. dollar. So I I, yeah. I I do agree with you in that sense, Stan. Now talking about this double A and single A uh, spring training not starting till April at the earliest. 
Yeah. What does that do for a prospect like Adley Rutschman, who is expected to start a double-A buoy this year? Does that mean that the Orioles wouldn't carry him in Major League Spring Training? Does it mean he'd be in Major League Spring Training and then go directly and spend another month in Minor League Spring Training? What would the plans? How would the plans be altered, if at all, for a guy like Adley Rutschman? I'm I'm not quite I'm not quite sure. You know, I mean, this is all kind of new that's coming out now. I mean, you know, and and I guess as much as it hurts us here that the 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 um, development of our number one prospect has been, you know, kind of kind of fallen apart over the last 12 months, 10 months. Um, every team is going through the same thing with their young players and it's a uh, it's a very it's really a very sad thing because you're talking about guys that work so hard to get that opportunity to get to the majors and it's not like they have a 25 35 year career, you know, or 40 years like most working people and I'm not pulling out the violins for baseball players but you know it's uh it's sad to watch the development of young players be thwarted this way and sort of be confused i mean i would guess that even if they intend to play him at double a um he might he might get advanced a little bit to start at triple a that's what I was about to ask you. Do you think yeah. there's a chance he could start a Triple A, given that the the, the Double A season? I, I think there's a, a, certainly a chance of that. You know, and and you know what you run the risk there of is if somebody fails for the first time in their career, how they handle failure by being up at a notch greater than they should be. You know, but uh, I don't think a month of Triple A baseball is going to ruin Adley Rutschman. So do you think that him playing a month of AAA baseball, do you think then he would be sent back down to Bowie, or do you think it's just one of those things where he stays I, I think year? it would depend. I, I think, honestly, it would depend upon his performance. Yeah, well, that you makes know, sense. In other words, if they play him at Norfolk, and the Norfolk season would start three weeks or four weeks before AA is going to start, and he's hitting 350, then I don't know that he needs to go back down, you yeah. know. Yeah, success. You, you've uh, got to you've got to do, in my opinion, because of the development issue. You can't retard somebody intentionally. You know, I know that they they would like to have him timed out to come up right when the team is about to be com- really competitive, and I don't mean competitive to win a World Series, competitive to be able to win seventy seven to 83 games for the first year, you know. Uh, and that's, uh, you know, that would move up his schedule some that he might uh, you might be sort of forced or to look kind of stupid if you don't bring him up this August or September. But I don't think you can sort of say, well, we'll just keep him, you know, we'll just go slow with him uh, because you, you run the risk of really retarding somebody's growth. Stan, do you think that the Orioles are going to have to succumb to any of the pressure they're going to get around the league? Because they're definitely going to have a lot of pressure from the media and from their fans to bring up Adley Rutschman and some of these other top prospects when they're starting to go down into the August and September months of the season. Do you think the Orioles will have to kind of think about making these moves because of what the media says? Um. No, I think Rutschman is a little bit of a, uh, you know, a sort of a, a, an outlier in terms of who's really ready to help the Orioles. I don't, I don't think we really think that uh, Grayson Rodriguez and D.L. Hall are really going to be ready 
this year to make an impact. You know, uh, that's not to say that they might not get a start or something like that in September, but I, I would still think that their clock is that they come into camp next year with a chance, an outside chance to make an impact and get a job in 2022, but more likely that both of them are kind of on target to come up midway through 2022. Well, Stan, uh, we've actually had we had Steve Molesky on the program a while back. We had Todd Karpovich on last week, and yep. these are a couple of guys who said that they can see the Orioles flirting with 500 this year. Um, and with, with that in mind, if the Orioles are flirting, hovering around 500 around the All Star break, could we see Rutschman earlier, or is this still a September call up scenario for him, no matter what? Well, with all due respect to Todd Karpovich and uh, and Steve Molesky, I. I don't, you know, I don't think the Orioles are any longer a, you know, a 64-win team, but I, I would not think that they're going to flirt with 500 this year. I would think that that's very unrealistic. Yeah, it, it, it would be a huge jump. I mean, though. you know, if Alex Cobb is pitching great, then Alex Cobb is going to get traded, and he won't, you know, and he won't, he won't be replaced by Grayson Rodriguez or D.L. Hall He'll be replaced by like Bruce Zimmerman or something like that. Exactly. I mean, I don't, I don't think this club's going to this year is going to be hold on, be able to hold on to the players that would be playing at um, a level that would make them near five hundred. Even if that happens, you know, there's talk now that Jonathan VR could sign, you know, with the Orioles, which I, I don't buy at all. I think that Galvez and Adrianza are much better shots to end up being the Orioles shortstop because of money. But if VR suddenly is having a terrific year, you know that the Orioles are going to deal them again. Yeah, you absolutely. I, any shortstop that they sign this year, if they're having a good year by the deadline, yeah. the Orioles are going to trade them. Uh, that's yep. that's just the way yep. it's going to be. So look, you're look, absolutely the Trey right. Mancini, the Trey Mancini story, we all love Trey in Baltimore, you know, and he's a you know, he's a, a player that's developed in the organization I'd love to see Trey Mancini uh, an Oriole for the next 10, 11 years, you know. But I, I'm also aware if he suddenly hits the hits the ground running this year, he could be dealt at midseason this year. They're not going to say, "Oh, we can't deal him because he." It's such a great story that he's overcome, can, you know, colon cancer, and Baltimore loves him. Now, in a in a in a, in a weird way, the sooner they trade Trey Mancini the better for them because they won't look as bad, you know. So uh, do I think Trey will perform well enough this year to really warrant a deal? It's possible. I would think that uh, more than likely it would be the body of his full work this year where he's coming on strong the second half that would lead them to probably deal him in the offseason. It's an it's an interesting thought, Stan, because everybody loves Trey. He's the face of the franchise. He has the great story of beating cancer this past se- this past season. Right. But he's twenty nine years old, and right. he's still arbitration eligible. So at, at, at twenty nine, this isn't a guy who's a twenty three, twenty four year old prospect. He's almost thirty years old. By the time right. the Orioles get back into contention, you're talking thirty one, thirty two, thirty three years old. Can you really afford it? As much as you love the story, can you really afford to keep a guy that age on your roster when there are younger players who can do the job? Right. I mean, you know, look, I'm rooting for Trey to do great for Trey Mancini. Oh, absolutely. And the, and the Orioles. I want to see him 
come back and immediately put to shreds any notion that this colon cancer is going to really affect his baseball career long term. That's what I'm rooting for. But in rooting for that, I'm also very realistic that if he's hitting 290 and has 14 homers and 44 RBIs at the, near the All Star break, you know that this there's a very good chance a team that needs a batter is going to pony up with two or three prospects for him. And then, can you really look a gift horse in the mouth with a with an you know, uh, again, a guy who's going to be in his 30s before the Orioles get going yeah. again. So it, yeah. it's, I don't it's think an there's interesting any prospect. I don't think that Trey will be on the Orioles in 2022. You know, that's that's I, and that I, hurts me to say that because I love the guy. You know, I've been in that I've been in that locker room. I've never really made friends with many players over 20 plus years, uh, 25 plus, 30 years uh, covering the team. But um, I can tell you from observation. He is one of the nicest guys to wear that uniform. He's a he's a personage that is uh, sort of a Brooks Robinson type of person. He's just a a great example, and it's just probably not going to happen. Yeah, I've I've never heard a person say a bad thing about the man. He's he's certainly a stand up citizen on the team and in the community. Uh, and saying this time last year before Trey was an. an, an uh, diagnosed with colon cancer, we sat on this show and we talked about the possibility of Trey Mancini being traded uh, to to help progress this rebuild, and that certainly hasn't let's, changed. Let's not forget. Let's not forget one thing. I, I forget what he's going to make this year. Is four point seven million. About that. Four point seven. Four point seven. Four point eight million. Okay. Around what if he? What if he had not gotten the cancer, and he put up a season last year of. And, and, you know, let's say there wasn't a pandemic and he put up a 35-115, you know, 295 batting average. Right. There's no way that the Orioles would not have traded him. They weren't going to trade him, that pay him 8 or $9 million this year, which arbitration-wise, he might have warranted it had he put up a huge season. Yeah, and, and that's the season he put up basically in 2019. Um, so back-to-back seasons like that, yeah, his his contract would have been through the roof, and there's yep. a good chance the Orioles would have traded traded him. I, yep. I'm on, we're on the yep. same page here, Stan. I I, yep. I, I agree with you 100. percent Now, yep. another player that the Orioles reportedly have interest in. It's a throwback to last year. Is Yasiel Puig? It's been announced again that the Orioles mm-hmm. are showing interest, and again, the the move still just doesn't make sense. If the Orioles were to sign him, where did where does he where is he going to play? Um, you know, I I, I wouldn't worry about where he's going to play until he were. First of all, I don't think he'll end up in Oriole. I think Me he either. Will, he will command a little too much outside of of what the Orioles would be comfortable playing paying him. Remember last year. The ball club knew they were only going to play 60 games. They were going to have these prorated salaries, you know. So it would have only cost $600,000 last year to have signed Yasiel Puig, and he would have probably been the best player on the team. Um, and that's not a worry in me is where you fit the best player on the team. You know, despite the fact he's got a mercurial temperament and he can be a bit of a jackass, he's still a wonderful, wonderfully gifted athlete. Uh, and I would worry about where he'd play once he was here. You know, um, uh, remember Chris Davis is on this team, but I don't think he's really on this team. You know, uh, and if there's a 28 man roster, that will keep Chris Davis on the team. But 
there, there's ways, plenty of ways to get Yasiel Puig, uh, you know, 300 at bats, 350 at bats on the Baltimore Orioles. Yeah, I just, I like, like you said, so be it. So be it if he's playing in front of uh, Austin Hayes or Cedric Mullins or Chris Davis, you know. Yeah, well, it's up to those guys to outperform him if they want to play. So you're you're yeah, right, you're right exactly. You're right on that on that tune. Um, I, but like you said, I just I don't envision him being a Baltimore Oriole. They offered him a contract last year, as Zach reported earlier, and he turned it down. So I I just can't foresee him signing in Baltimore now. Stan, yeah, I mean, I think he's a, he's a better fit on a team that's good. Now, the other reason he's a great signing, by the way, is let him do real well for two months as a Baltimore Oriole. And you could probably flip him for a nice pitching prospect in the heat of the race if the Yankees again lose, uh, you know, Giancarlo Stanton or something like that. You know, part of what getting these veteran players is for is to have them there because they they do become trade chips, you know. Yeah, so the report that Yasiel Puig is is connected to the Orioles is coming from Mark Feinsand, and he said he's drawing interest from multiple teams per sources, Red Sox, Yankees, Astros, Marlins, and Orioles. Marlins, we know, were in on him last year, but I think the Red Sox are really kind of a perfect fit for Yasiel Puig. Yeah, you know, I've read a couple times that his relationship with Don Mattingly would give the uh, Marlins a good opportunity. I think I think that they couldn't wait to get rid of him when Mattingly was there. You know, I don't think the two of them got along well at all. Now, Mattingly might tell a different story publicly, but I don't think uh, Mattingly uh, cared for managing uh, Yasiel Puig. I'll, I'll just throw in one picture that uh, I wrote up in my column last month for PressBox. Well, it's still out right now, the one with Trey Mancini on the cover that's oh, out right of 400. 400, 450 plus locations around town, including 60 Royal Farm stores, because Trey Mancini was named our Mo Gabba uh, Sports Person of the Year, is Colin McHugh. I understand he's about to, uh, in the next week or 10 days, have a little showcase, uh, and there's a lot of interest in him, which is unfortunate because I was hoping he, he might be somebody that was off the radar, but Colin McHugh would be a great fit for the Orioles for both the reason that he could eat up some innings as a veteran starting pitcher on this staff and develop into a A1 uh, trade chip. So. Yeah, I was kind of hopeful for Colin McHugh myself, uh, but if a ton of teams have interest, I doubt that he ends up in Baltimore. Now, Stan, yeah, I doubt, I doubt that too. Stan, yeah. before we let you go, I know this is a baseball yep. show, but the the uh, the Ravens have a big matchup with the same team they lost to 365 days ago. Wait a minute, when is that game? That's tomorrow. Tomorrow, it is? tomorrow at one o'clock. Jeez, I didn't know that. Yeah, the Ravens play the Titans tomorrow at one o'clock. Yep. Um Is there? Uh, can they pull this out? Will they pull this out? This is, uh, you know, they they're zero oh and two against the Titans in the last calendar year. The mm-hmm. same, almost the exact same date as last year. What's going to be different this season or this year? I think this this year, what's going to happen is um, they're going to. St- first of all, last year um, they, I I think that the team had won twelve consecutive games. They felt that all they had to do was show up, and the Titans were going to roll over. I don't think that mentality will be in that locker room this time. I think they know they got to go out and hit hard from the beginning of the football game. And if they fall behind, they can't panic the way they did last year. 
it was like they were behind seven to nothing or ten to nothing or ten to three, and they were playing like they were twenty five points behind in the second quarter. You know, they were only seven or nine points down at the time. They've got to stick to the game plan, which is going to be an awful lot of uh, Gus Edwards and an awful lot of uh, J.K. Dobbins. Uh, did I get that right? Is he J.K. Dobbins? Yeah, you got that right. Okay. Uh, all of a sudden, I'm thinking I might have the wrong initials. I think they're going to run the football, and um, I think they're going to uh, – one of the best ways to keep Derrick Henry off the playing field is to control the football. And I'm looking for a lot of long drives, and they've got to figure a way to, to put some pressure on uh, Ryan Tannehill. They Absolutely. did not do that last year in that game. And Wink Martindale's got to come up with a couple wrinkles and hurry him uh, because they've got a good receivers. You know, Corey Davis and that kid Brown are terrific. But uh, I think the Ravens win this game by about six or seven points. Yeah, I, I got them winning, too. I, I think it's going to be a little bit more than that. But I, I, I got the Ravens winning, too. I think they have a chip on their shoulder. They Stand- might win like 10, 10 points or something like that. You know, the spread is through. What's fascinating is that the Ravens, even though the fact they've lost twice to this team in 12 calendar months, they're, they're the favorite team on the road. Yeah, uh, yeah, which is really, really, actually, quite interesting. I would have thought this game would have been a Titans minus one, you know, minus one, one and a half. Not Ravens favored by three and a half. So the odds makers, I think, are right on the money on where this game is. Yeah, hopefully they're right, uh, Stan. You know what? Enjoy Super Wild Card Weekend. Have a great day, and we'll talk to you hey, soon. Hey, thanks, thanks for having me. I always look forward to our conversations. By the way, Zoom uh, Monday night. Uh, ben McDonald's going to join us on, awesome. uh, on Press Box Live, uh, Ross Grimsley and I. And we're going to try and start that at 7 o'clock Baltimore time rather than 8 o'clock because there's a football game Monday night that's pretty uh, special. Yeah, National uh, Ohio State and Alabama. Hey, hey, Stan, ask Ben how to pronounce his nephew's last name. I think it's Scroller. Scroller, <laughs> I well, think. Yeah. All, all right. right. All right. I will yeah. ask. I will ask, though. Guys, have a great Saturday. You do Bye. the same. Take care. Bye. That was Stan the Fan Charles with his normal weekly segment at 1020 every Saturday here on the Bat Around from the Chesapeake Employers Insurance Studio. Running a little bit long today. We have to get a break. We're going to get Eric Arditi on the program in about five minutes. Uh, my apologies to Eric for making him hold on. Uh, I do want to remind you that Stan the Fan Charles has two great shows for you every week that he just plugged. Uh, and like everything else in the world, they're happening over Zoom. Every Monday night, Stan and former Orioles pitcher Ross Grimsley visit with a different guest from the world of baseball. And every Wednesday night, Stan and Gary Stein chat a different newsmaker from the world of sports. This week, Stan and Ross got caught up on the Orioles offseason while Stan and Gary caught up with Maryland Sports Executive Director Terry Hasseltine and former, former U.S. soccer star Oguchi Onyewu to discuss Baltimore's push for the 2026 World Cup. I'm sorry if I butchered that guy's name. It was a complete phonetic guess. Uh, both of those shows can be found under the videos tab at facebook.com slash pressboxsports. Coming up this Monday night at not 8, but at 7, as Stan said, because of the national championship. Stan and Ross will catch up with the great Ben McDonald. Join them on Facebook Live or find the show the next day at PressBoxOnline.com. Stan's weekly shows are brought to you by C3 American Exteriors. Find them at C3America.com. 
Call C3 American Exteriors to get roof and siding repairs for the cost of your home insurance deductible. Don't let the insurance industry get one over on you. Call C3 at 410-401-9797 or go to C3America.com for a free analysis. Guys, we're going to get a break. When we get back, Barstool Sports' own Eric Arditi. Glory Days Grill Fall Winter Seasonal Menu is now available for dine-in, dine-out, on the patio, or to-go. It's a new season, so enjoy new flavors. Try their new shrimp appetizers, homemade meatloaf, impossible cheesesteaks, and more. They're open from 11 a.m. to 9 p.m. every day. Visit glorydaysgrill.com for a location near you. From the Glory Days Grill family, stay healthy and positive during this challenging time in our community. For more than 40 years, K&S Automotive has been repairing, restoring, and maintaining foreign and domestic vehicles with a focus on exceptional workmanship and customer service. Everything from oil changes to major body work. Call K&S now at 410-235-6600 or go to knsimports.com. That's K&S at knsimports.com. Hey, Dad, can we try one of those hoagie things? <sighs> Sorry, son. We aren't hoagie people. What do you mean? Son, we're Royal Farms sub people, like my daddy was, and his daddy before him, like you and me, and all the folks we know. Gee, Dad, I never thought about it like that. So you're saying hoagie people are... Aliens, son. They're aliens. <laughs> Royal Farm subs are Baltimore's best. Real fresh, real fast. Royal Farms. C3 American Exteriors is the area's best and most trusted roof and siding specialists. C3 is also an insurance adjuster's worst nightmare and a homeowner's dream come true. With all of the bad weather, chances are you have some roof and siding damage. Call C3 American Exteriors now to get your roof and siding repairs for the cost of your deductible. Don't let the insurance industry get one over on you. C3 guarantees a 48-hour rapid response. Call 401 or go to c3america.com for a free analysis. If it's happening in Baltimore sports and beyond, it's happening on Glenn Clark Radio. New Ravens linebacker Patrick Queen. Appreciate you. Trey Mancini. Thanks for having me on, guys. Glad to be back on. Ravens linebacker Matt Judon. Appreciate you. How y'all doing? Ravens kicker Justin Tucker. Thanks for having me. Adley Rutschman. Absolutely. Thanks for having me on. Coach Mark Turgeon. How you guys doing? Heston Kerstad. Thanks for having me. Joe Burrow. Thanks so much. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me on. Marlon Humphrey. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Coach Mike Loxley. Thanks for having me on. He is J.K. Dobbins. Thank you for having me. I had a great time. The great Ray Lewis. Always good to be on. Dicky V, Dick Vitale. Glenn and Kyle, two diaper dandy. What's up, fellas? Hey, what's going on, Ed? Glenn and Kyle are live Monday through Friday, 10 a.m. to noon, and archived anytime. Watch Facebook.com slash Pressbox Sports and listen to PressBoxOnline.com slash radio. Tired of virtual sports, online school, and Zoom happy hours? Then join the COVID-19 Plasma Trials, sponsored by Johns Hopkins University. You could receive plasma that contains antibodies from recovered COVID-19 patients. So if you've just been exposed, participating in the trial could prevent you from getting it. Join the fight now at covidplasmatrial.org so we can all get back to stadium seating, school buses, and saying cheers in person. covidplasmatrial.org. The fight starts here. 
The latest edition of PressBox is available now, and it's our very special annual Best of Issue. On the cover, we recognize our Mo Gabba Sports Person of the Year, Trey Mancini, whose courageous fight against colon cancer and dedication to the community inspired us this year. We also recognize other Baltimore sports fighters, the current and former local athletes and coaches who have taken active roles in the fight against COVID-19 and for social justice. PressBox is available for free at over 500 area locations including 60 Royal Farm stores. And you can always find the entire edition as well as the best daily coverage of the Orioles, Ravens, and Turks at PressBoxOnline.com. Welcome back to the Bat Around with your host, Paul Valley and my co-host, Zach Goodman. Before we get to our next guest, I just want to point out, Zach sent me um, a direct message on Twitter during Stan's segment. The Nationals have signed Kyle Schwarber to a one-year deal pending a physical. Zach, you're saying that they are probably going to play him as their everyday left fielder? Is it? Right, yep. Yeah, so w- with him in left, Turner and no, Turner's playing shortstop. Him in left and Juan Soto in right plus Josh Bell. It's going to be a pretty formidable little lineup for the Nationals. Again, pending a physical, uh, Kyle Schwarber is in agreement with the Nationals on a one-year deal. We have Barstool Sports' own Eric Arditi on the line. Eric, how are you, my man? Good, good. How are you guys? We're doing pretty well, doing pretty well. Thanks for joining the program. Been a uh, been a few months since we've spoken, man. How are things in your DD household? You still dunking on your daughter? Yeah, yeah. She doesn't want to play basketball that much anymore. And, I mean, I can understand why after getting completely owned like that. <laughs> Posterized by her own father. Yeah, I mean, you know, but, again, we, I got a tough new, new, new easy dance. It's going to teach her to play better defense. So, hopefully when the weather gets warm, we can move the hoop outside and uh, we can get some runs back in. Uh, yeah, man, I, I I always look forward to seeing those videos. They're too funny. If anybody's missed him, he just he just goes goes to town dunking on. What, she's what two three years old. Uh, yeah, just turned two a couple uh, a couple of weeks back. Yeah, it's 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 good stuff. Good stuff. Now for the Orioles, man, um, we watched the Ravens lose a game to the Pittsburgh Steelers on a Wednesday night, and before the dust had even settled, the Orioles sent us a devastating blow as they traded uh, Jose Iglesias to the Angels for two pitching prospects, and they don't have a shortstop on opening day. If you were to look into your magic eight ball or your crystal ball, who's playing shortstop for the Baltimore Orioles on April 1st at Fenway? I, I don't know if that person's on the team yet, and and I know you guys were talking to Stan about it. Um, some of the names that I – I mean, I like the, the Freddie Galvis and – I mean, heck, kick the tires on VR again. Like Stan was saying, if he wants to come back, I don't know if he will. Um, I mean, I, I don't know how he fits into Elias's, you know, whole analytical look and stuff like that. But I liked him when he was here. He uh, and again, I mean, it, it's 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 not that often where you see a guy on a team, then they trade him. And again, this is a this is a, a fourth place team last year. But then he, if he's like, hey, yeah, I'm open to coming back because he probably knows he'll be traded again. So. I mean, if he's down for that, yeah, we could come on in. You know, the water's fine. Um, I'd be okay with that. Or, again, you know, spend, spending cheap on a guy like Freddie Galvis. Um, and, 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 again, any of those shortstops, I think they know if they sign. And they're batting 310 in August, hey, or, you know, July, June. Guess what? You're probably going to go somewhere. Um, so, I mean, you know, all these guys know their placeholders. But, I mean, sign me up for the Freddie Galvis or the um, or the Jonathan VR train. Yeah, man, I'm – I. I'm on the Freddie Galvis train right now. Not a great OBP in his career, but he has he has that power. Plays really solid defense at shortstop. I I think I would probably lean more towards him than VR because I like the defense better and I want that good defense behind a young uh, starting rotation. 
And speaking of that rotation, for the first time in a long time, it seems like the top four in that rotation for the Orioles is pretty much set in John Means, Alec Cobb, Alex Cobb, uh, Dean Kramer, and Keegan Aiken. But they still have to fill that fifth role. Does Jorge Lopez have the inside track there? And who do you see the Orioles targeting as a free agent? Because you know they're going to sign a free agent pitcher to probably a minor league deal with an invite to spring training. Yeah, we're gonna. I feel like we're gonna run back the uh, Wade LeBlanc and um, who's the other guy that they signed Tommy last Malone. year? Tommy yeah, Malone. yeah, Tommy Malone. I feel like they're gonna they're gonna run that play again. And and like you said, they're gonna sign a guy to a minor league deal. And heck, he may, someone you know, one of those guys may end up making the uh, like we saw with Tommy Malone last year, making the um, opening day start. I think it was didn't he, didn't he end up making that start? Yeah, because John Means was had a uh, arm fatigue or dead mm-hmm. arm or whatever it was. It ended up being Tommy Malone. Yeah, so you know, I again, I'm not, I'm not quite sure who they're going to get. Um, I know the names are out there, but again, they're gonna. I mean, it's it's gonna be one of these guys who, who again, is gonna sign on a minor league deal. Um, again, I don't think they're gonna. They're not gonna pluck anyone up from spring training or any of the uh, the AAA guys, the the Lowthers or Bauman's or anyone like that yet. But um, I, I, I mean, honestly, I don't know who, who they're gonna who they're gonna pick up or who they're targeting again. There's a bunch of guys, and they're all kind of just guys. I, I know. I, I feel like every time I come on, we say that where they just have a bunch of guys. Um, so I, I think that's what they're just going to have to find someone, kind of like Dumpster Diving Dan used to do, and pick him up off the trash heap and throw him in that five spot, and hopefully get a couple starts out of him before these uh, these guys in the minors feel comfortable enough, and before the team likes likes enough of what they're seeing out of those young guys, and and then. They'll probably move that veteran guy to the bullpen or option him around or trade him, something like that. Hey, Eric, it's Zach. And Bruce Zimmerman made his Major League debut last year. We saw that. And he pitched all right. He didn't do too bad. But he might have an inside track to the bullpen or even that fifth starter spot. What do you think about Bruce Zimmerman? And do you think he could possibly slot into the back of that rotation? Yeah, I'd be, I'd be more than happy with seeing Zimmerman there. I mean, again, I, I think he didn't blow anyone away. He wasn't, you know, he didn't have the debut like Kramer and Aiken did last year. But I, I think he, I think he was serviceable. Um, you know, can't can't really hurt to get another lefty in there too. Um, yeah. And again, I mean, the the Orioles don't have much to lose. Again, now we're, we're still playing the let's see what we got here with him. Um, so I, I'm more than happy with with letting him, you know. And even if Elias comes, or not Elias, if Hyde comes out early and says, you know, hey, we're going to give Zimmerman. You know, five starts. We're going to give Lopez five starts and kind of go from there. And, and after those, we're, we'll see where you know where we are, something like that. I'm fine with that. Again, this team isn't competing. They're they're not gonna they're not pressing anyone for a wild card spot. So again, I mean, see what you got in your in your in your deck of cards, and and I, I'd be perfectly fine if I saw Zimmerman. You know, every every fifth day in that in that four or five spot in the rotation. Yeah, and then as far as Aiken and Kramer go, uh, you know, two more young guys that figure to slot into this rotation. But if they were to not pitch as well as we expect them to, how long do you think the leash is going to be on those two guys with getting moved to the bullpen? Do you think they'll just stick all the way through the season, or you know, if they don't pitch as well as we expect, get moved out? I I think just I think they'll probably stick in just again because it's not like they have a bunch of guys knocking on the door right and like I'm I'm totally expecting a little you know regression from Kramer and from Aiken um, I know we kind of saw it I think with Aiken his last I think he had like two two or three really good starts you know the the one against the Yankees and some of those other ones and then he kind of was I mean you could tell that he was a kid who was making his major league debut and 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 was probably getting a little tired. Um, so I'm, and I'm kind of expecting the like like what we saw with John Meese, where 
where they kind of come back down to earth and there's a book out on them um, and, and, and people kind of catch up to them. But I, I think, again, I, I think uh, I think Hyde kind of lets them ride. And, and I mean, because guess what? They're going to have some bad games, even, even when the team is winning. They're going to have some bad games against teams in this division in these stadiums with this with this you know hot weather in the summer. So you might as well not get them used to it. But like, hey guys, this happens. You're going to get knocked down and see how they respond. See how they can see how they can bounce back. And 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 I mean, if Kramer's hanging his head coming off the mound after you know his first bad start or something, I throw. I mean, you got to throw him right back out there and, and throw him to the, throw him to the sharks and, and see how he does. And if he bounces back. It's like, well, we got the guy with that that killer mentality, the guy who wants that ball the next day, not the like, you know, okay, well, maybe maybe if I do go to the bullpen, maybe that will settle some of this stuff. I want the guy who's like, get me back out there right now and, and let's go. So I, I would say that I think they keep him in, um, in the rotation. And again, unless someone in the in the bullpen is or in AAA is just absolutely killing it. I mean, it, again, there's no one really knocking on the door threatening these guys. Yeah. Now. Eric, another place where the Orioles have a lot of guys is in the outfield. Yet for some reason, there's they're rumored to be re, uh, to be interested in Yasiel Puig for the second straight year. Is there any merit to this interest? Can you see him playing for the Orioles in 2021? And if he does, what does that mean for guys like Yasiel Diaz and Ryan McKenna? Yeah, I don't. It's it's weird because you know if the Orioles do have one spot where they have good depth and, and some good players to the outfield. But yet again, second year in a row, like you said, where we're getting this Yasiel Puig name mentioned. And I don't know if Elias just has like such a man crush on him. Um, or like I, maybe he has some underlying bet, you know, with some other GM, like, Hey, I'll bet you, I'll bet you we can get him to sign and then flip him or something like that. But um, yeah, it, it's, I mean, obviously I think like everyone else, my thought is, if if they do sign him, they're gonna he's gonna be traded. He won't be here long. You can buy a jersey and remember it, you know, in a couple <laughs> of years, and it'll be something funny to laugh at. But it, we're not gonna see him next year. I mean, I, even if he does sign and play well, I, again, he, I think he's gonna be traded um, because again, they want to see what they have in Diaz, who's, who is. I, I mean, I gotta guess that he would be one. He would be the first outfielder called up, probably, in, in case of an injury or, or just you know a bench guy coming off. Um, but and we're we're also kind of getting to that point with Diaz where it's like, all right, man, like we kind of got to see what you got here. Enough of these soft tissue injuries. It seemed like every time at Bowie, I was reading about him, and and he'd be playing well, and then he would tweak his hamstring going down the line, or he'd have a quad injury, right. or something like that. So we we I mean, again, we got we kind of have to see what we have in him because we're we're getting to that point now where other people from that trade are producing. You know, Bannon is knocking on the door. We saw Dean Kramer last year. There's a bunch of these guys. You know that that we've already seen in the bigs, and and we're waiting to see. But I mean, I, I again, I I wouldn't hate if if the if I hung up the phone right now and got on Twitter and saw that the Orioles signed Puig, I would not be upset. Um, because again, I, I he's not the best clubhouse guy. He's not really a guy that you want your young people to you know stand next to this guy and and watch everything he does. Because guess what, he is kind of lazy. Um, he's a physical freak. I mean, you know, we 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 saw what he could do out in L.A. and but it is kind of worrisome that he's bounced around and he never did find that that permanent home. And, and again, the guy's still looking for a job. I know he signed last year and then got COVID like 11 minutes after he signed the deal or whatever. But, um, I, again, I'm not, I'm not going to be pissed if they don't sign him, and I'm not, I'm not going to be doing cartwheels if they do. I, I think if they do, it'll just be – maybe they think Diaz isn't ready and they, they say, hey, Diaz will be up – He'll probably be ready in July. He'll be ready in August, and we can bring him up then. And if they sign Puig and, and they can say, all right, 
we just need two and a half months out of him, and then we'll trade him. And then the day they trade him, they bring Diaz up. That that's that's fine with me too. But I mean, I, I like the homegrown guys that they have, and you know, Hayes and even Mullins played well, and Santander and Stewart. So I, you know, I, I I'm I'm fine either way. Yeah, I, I tend to be on the same page with you there. I'm I'm fine either way. I wouldn't hate it if they signed him, but you also know that if he does get signed, it's with one in ten, and that's for him to play well and then trade him at the deadline to mm-hmm. help progress this rebuild. Now, um, I was reading Rock's, Rock Kabatko's blog the other day, and he noted that Cole Salser came out and said he was pitching with an injured foot midseason when he basically imploded, um, fractured some toes, and sprained, sprained his foot on his bedpost. Um, does this change your opinion on how his season played out? And with him fully healthy, do you think Brandon Hyde thrusts him back into that uh, back end of the bullpen? I mean, if he was getting thrusted into that 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 back bullpen spot with fractured toes and all that, then yeah, I, th- I think if he's healthy, um, I think, and I, I'm, I'm sure that there was a time where Cole came to Hyde after you know either after the season or close to the end or whatever, and said, "Hey, you know, here's what's going on. Here's here's why I'm." I haven't been pitching that well, and and so I mean, my my guess is Hyde would say, you know, hey, we we saw some flashes out of him because we did. We we saw some really good games out of him, and we saw some tough innings, um, you know, late late in the game. But then but then we saw some just terrible pitching from him uh, at, at times. But again, if he's got fractured toes and a hurt foot, yeah, I can I can totally see why. And yeah, I mean, again, there's no one. There's no one really that's knocking that that's locked down that closer spot. People have said, you know, Tanner Scott and um, what's the guy's name, Caesar Valdez. Yeah, um, I always forget about Valdez. Yeah, well, it's, it's most mostly because he's I think turning 48 this week uh, <laughs> or next next week, something like that. Um, but yeah, yeah, I mean, you know, he pitched well, and again, again, I I think they're going to give him a shot again because we saw some good stuff, and there's just there there's no. Set in stone closer, you know Hunter Harvey or Tanner Scott or Valdez, some of those guys. I mean, you might as well see what you got in Sulcer and 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 let let him run again again. And and it's 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 going to be interesting because it's not a sixty game season. So you're you're gonna well, hopefully it's not going to be yeah. a sixty game season. Hopefully we'll get a longer season where maybe Hyde can say, okay, maybe I'll try. You know, Sulcer out for twenty, Tanner Scott out for eighteen, Harvey out for fifteen, and in those late inning roles just to see what he has. So. We're going to have a bigger, uh, I guess, body of work for, for some of these guys this year. Now, J.J. Cooper from Baseball America announced the other day that double-A and single-A seasons will be delayed as their spring trainings won't start until after the Major League spring training concludes due to the pandemic. What are your thoughts on that, first and foremost? And then how does that impact a prospect like yours and my favorite, Adley Rutschman, who could be ticketed for double-A Bowie? Does this mean that he, uh, that he isn't at, spring, at Major League spring training? Or does it mean that he spends two months, basically, in spring training with Major League and Minor League um, Spring training. I'd probably lean the latter. What you were saying, where he spends more time down in spring training, um, again learning, you know, catching some of the guys on the major league roster, and then when they, when they, when that camp breaks, then then he'll stay down and 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 again get those reps that. I, I guess he he didn't really miss out on the reps last year because he was at that that summer camp type thing. But I, I mean, I'm sure they're they're going to want to get him as many. Um, as many reps as, as he can get. And I'm, I'm not so sure that it, it affects him as much as it affects some of the other guys who, who again, like a use nail Diaz, who, cause like Adley, I think they kind of know what they have in him right now. Um, some of the other guys with the question marks hanging over them, that's where it may affect them. And, and, you know, cause it, and some of these guys who 
may have been penciled in to come up if it's not a pandemic year last year and this year. Maybe some of those guys who were scheduled to come up, you know, mid this year, later this year, that's where it may push them back because, again, the delaying of the, the start of the, I think, the double-A and single-A camp it was. and Because yeah. and, and, weren't they saying that they're basically doing it so they can wait for the major league club to leave and then the triple-A club to leave, and so you're not having these big groups of people hang around, which, exactly. which makes sense. Exactly. Um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's definitely going to be interesting, and, and it, it's going to – it's going to just further delay some of the the, the, the prospects who w- we're hoping to get in this year. You know, the, the later, almost like a, a guy like a Keegan Aiken or, or someone like that who we didn't really know if he was going to come up last year, and then and then we, uh, obviously we ended up seeing him. But those guys who aren't really guaranteed to like to come up this year and, and guys that we're going to see. Yeah, Eric, there was an article written by Jim Callis a few days ago called 2021 Breakout Prospects, one for every team, and he named Gunnar Henderson the Orioles' breakout prospect for 2021. If you had to choose, who would be your breakout prospect, given that the minor leagues happen like they're supposed to? I mean, Gunnar's not a bad choice, and and so funny story is I've been getting back into these baseball trading cards and football and NBA and stuff like that, and I've been buying all the Orioles' prospects cards, like super cheap, you know, some of their top guys and i'm just loading up on gunner cards because and it's funny because it's almost like the card people know like hey this guy gunner henderson is going to be really good so now his prices are starting to go up with like with heston and and adley and those guys so i think that's a good sign um people think he's going to be good i i'm fully i'm on board with the gunner henderson uh the train i i love the the um you know the Orioles released those videos of him in the at the spring training camp or the the camp at Bowie and and I I don't know what it is but he seems to have it like his his attitude just watching him play and and I, I I'm I'm fully on him and I I love that again it's it's a great sign for the organization that these that these articles aren't just saying like who's one prospect to watch Adley Rutschman or Ryan Mountcastle or DL Hall those are the guys that you know they, that we know about the casual baseball fans know about some Oriole fans may not know what they have in Gunnar Henderson yet and and I think I think it's it's a great sign and I'm I, I I'm fully on board with that that train so I I have to stick with that same answer. Yeah, I'm. Uh, I, I'm really hopeful that Gunnar Henderson's gonna be the next great shortstop to come through Baltimore. Um, now, with that in mind, Eric, we're gonna have a little bit of fun here on the bat around. Um, Cal Ripken, of course, was the was the great shortstop to come through Baltimore. Set that. Uh, single season war record by a shortstop the 11 war in 1991 and on the bat around um zach and i have ranked the top five Orioles seasons by position players by starters by bullpen by a team in the non-world series and then later today we're gonna do we're gonna conclude that series with the five best teams in Orioles history so i texted you yesterday eric and i told you that we want you to give us your top um performer at each one of those categories so why don't you go ahead and tell us uh first your top position player in orioles history yeah so i i, I kind of struggled with this one it was it was that either that that cal season i i had to go with frank robinson in 1966 though the triple crown yeah. you know winner that in three six slashing 316 410 637 i mean he had 49 home runs 122 uh rbis and, and just the triple crown, I think, just put it over the the, the top for me, um, it, and it could have gone in a couple of different ways. But I, I think just the, the triple crown, especially back then, um, just such a it's just such a special 
I, you know, not award, but it's a, such a special thing for a player to accomplish. So I, I think I had to give it to Frank there for his uh, his season in 1966. Well, certainly winning the, coming over from the National League, winning the MVP and helping lead the Orioles to a World Series victory. And Frank hit that uh, home run for the lone run in Game 4 that was the deciding game of that World Series when the Orioles beat the Dodgers one to nothing. So definitely Frank and Cal's not... Frank in '66 and Cal in '91 were the top two on everybody's list, so it's a it's mm-hmm. a it's a solid choice. Uh, what about for your uh, best season by a starting pitcher? Starter, I went with Palmer, 1975. Um, it was, it was, he went 23 and 11, got a 2.09 ERA, 25 complete games is kind of what did it for me. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's just we, we 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 won't see anything close to 25 complete games in probably the next two seasons combined by anyone. Um, 10 shutouts, Cy Young led the AL and wins, ERA, it's it just insane. 323 innings pitched, too. I mean, the guy was just a horse, and, and I, I think it, it was. I was struggling with that. There were a couple uh, Mike Messina years. I think 92 was one of them. But I just I had to go Palmer for that one. Yeah, there was um, it, 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 Palmer was Palmer was in the top two. Uh, so was uh, Mike Cuellar. In 1968, he had a, he had an ERA that was about like one and a half, and the only reason he didn't win the Cy Young that year is because Denny McLean had an ERA a little bit higher at like 1.9 or something like that, but won 31 games. So, yeah, my, the Jim Palmer 1975 was definitely top two on everybody's list. Now, I think I know your answer to the next one: top season by an Orioles relief pitcher. Yeah, and I tried to get creative and like see if there was something I could do. I mean, I, I think there's just one answer. I think it's got it has to be 2016 Britain. Absolutely, it just has to be. Like I like I, I I don't know. I would love to hear arguments for other for other years. You know, Greg Olson had a couple. I mean, you could even throw you know some of the Jim Johnson years in there. But I mean, Britain setting all those records: the .54 ERA, the one you know one home run given up, .836 WHIP. And, and I mean, I think he should have finished higher in the side. Young, he finished fourth. Um, I, I, I think all those numbers, and again, because it was still pretty recent, I think they all speak for themselves, and, and we all just remember just how dang good he was that year. Yeah, I mean, really, all you need to say about Zach Britton, it is the greatest relief season in the history of Major League Baseball. He came, it, it, yep. he came in, and you knew the game was over immediately. Yeah. It was the greatest. Well, unless he didn't come in. But oh yeah, and like that's, that's a story for a different day. Yeah, <laughs> it's never not going to be too soon for that. Um, all right, so who's your best team to not make a World Series appearance? All righty, so my best team not winning a World Series or without winning without getting to the World Series. Sorry, I, I I went back and forth between the '96 and '97 O's, and even though the '97 team had ten more wins, I went the 1996 team. They went 88-74. Lost in the Mayor series and it four one to the Yankees, um, and and I was just, it was crazy because when I'm looking at the numbers comparing the teams again, I think the '97 team won 98 games, but the '96 team outscored them by 137 runs, yep. which kind of that, that kind of blew my mind. Um, but then they also did give up 222 more runs than the season before. But I, I mean, it was just I think it was just such a better overall team. They had seven guys hit over 20 home runs, so it was. And I think the '97 team had two. Um, I don't know. I, I think that '96 team was. was I, I don't know why. I, I think they were a little bit better than the '97. So, you know, again, losing four-one to the Yankees in the World Series. That was the uh, ALCS. That was the uh, 
I actually have a ball from that ALCS series because Daryl Strawberry fouled one off in the club level and it hit my dad right in the glasses and knocked his lens out. And the, the guy who got the ball gave it to me. So wow, I, I got oh, that's that an awesome the story. Down there. Yeah, man, look, that, that, that 96 team, uh, 949 runs scored, a then major league record, 257 home runs. I remember Mark Parent, the, uh, the left-handed catcher, as, setting the, uh, as hitting the home run that gave the Orioles the new record. And... Um, yeah, and Mike, you mentioned it with the pitching. They gave up so many more runs in that 97 Mike Mussina led the team with 19 wins and led the team with a 481 ERA out of that. that, that the, the pitching was just atrocious, but really solid baseball team to kind of, you know, jumpstart the Orioles to back-to-back ALCS. That's a, that's a good choice there, Eric. And then finally, your best team in Orioles history. I, I had to go 1970. Um, 108-54, they beat the Reds 4-1 in the World Series. Um, I, I, I had to go with with the team that, that won a World Series. And, and, again, I mean, 108 wins isn't too shabby. But, yeah, I, I just, again, I, I can't really speak. I can't speak much on it because I wasn't born for another 19 years after that. But, um, I mean, you know, I, I think you had to go with a World Series winning team. Oh, absolutely. And that's that's the one that I went with. Yeah, that, that was the season that was sandwiched in between the 109-win season and the 101-win season. The Orioles won 318 games in three years. It, just an unbelievable run for the Baltimore Orioles in 1970, that, the lone championship out of three straight World Series appearances. And Eric, before we let you go, we'd be remiss if we didn't mention it. Um, you're a Titans fan, and the Ravens and Titans are playing in the wild card matchup tomorrow at 1 o'clock here. Um, well, it's not here. It's in Tennessee. But it's the second straight year, 365 days apart, that the Ravens and Titans are playing in the Ravens' first playoff game. Are you as confident about this game as you were about last game? I don't think I've ever been so not confident in a team. I and and I said it on our podcast this week, and Banks has been giving me crap for it all, all week, saying that I'm this is my shtick and this is the bit I'm doing. I said I'm not confident at all, and and people thought I was trolling last week when like 10 minutes into the Ravens game when they went up on the Bengals, I said, well, it looks like we're getting Ravens-Titans, you know, round three. And people were like, you don't want this smoke. You know, you don't want this. And I was like, I, you're correct. I don't. I, I don't want to play this team. <laughs> Again, I said I said that with Jeremy Kahn last night, I think outside of the Bills, I think they're pl- they're probably playing the best football. The Ravens are probably playing the best football in the AFC right now. I mean, again, they've won five straight. And I know it's not murder and row they're beating, but the way they're doing it, I mean, Again, I, I know it's the Bengals, but 400 yards rushing is 400 yards rushing. Yeah. You don't, you don't just luck into that. So I, I and I said it all week, and I'm, I'm going to stick with this, um, with this score. I, I'm looking at 38-28 Ravens. I, I think it's, I, I just think, and it's mostly because the, the the Titans defense is just that bad. They they can't stop anyone. Um, they can't stop anyone on third down. They 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 can't get any pressure on the quarterback and and. I, I, I'm not really worried about the offense. I think the offense will get theirs, and you know they can they can score mid twenties, high twenties. But I just don't think there's a way that they can contain Lamar. I think I think he has a really good game, and and I think you know some of those haters that that are you know saying that he can't win a playoff game when he's zero and two, which is insane to me. Like he's he's not zero and five. He's not zero and six. It's it's two games, and one was a starter when it was like his tenth start in the in the league or something like that. So I, I think Lamar has a really good game. Um, I think the Ravens take this one again. I, I, I wouldn't. I'm saying 38, 20, 28. It wouldn't surprise me if it was if it was a little, uh, little higher margin. Eric, how many uh, Derrick Henry stiff arm gifts are we going to get in the next 48 hours? 
So I'm I'm playing it I'm playing it cool. I'm uh, I'm I, I haven't been mixing it up that much this week. I don't want to lose as many followers as I did last <laughs> year. Um, and I know there are some there are some people who don't appreciate me being a Titans fan. Um, I I may throw one or two out, but I don't I don't think I'll get too mouthy uh, if the Titans do win. But again, it it kind of depends on uh, what what kind of adult soda I'm drinking tomorrow. So uh, we'll we'll see how that goes. Oh, man, I got, I got to tell you, I want the Ravens to win for no other reason. I don't think I can take another year of the braggy Eric Arditi. I don't, <laughs> I don't think I can do it, man. Hey, I, don't, I mean, I don't know. Like, if, again, I, I can't I'm, – I'm saying right now that I'm going to be calm and cool, collected. Because, again, I, and this is what I always do. It's kind of a, a look into, into my, my genius mind that's not so genius. <laughs> I think the Titans are going to lose. So if they lose, then I'm like, I knew it. See, I'm the smartest man in the world. But then if they win, I'm like, all right, well, I can be fine. I'm fine being wrong because the Titans won. So yeah, it'll. Uh, I, I'm just hoping for a good game. I know a lot of other people in the area are picking a closer game, but I'm I'm also excited that it's not like a Sunday night game and that I have to wait the entire weekend and yeah. just drag the day just drags on and on and on. So I'm happy that. My day will either be made or ruined by about four thirty tomorrow. Yeah, I, I, I told a buddy of mine. I'm glad the Ravens are playing on Sunday because I don't want them to ruin my, the, my entire weekend. They can just ruin Sunday. Um, <laughs> but but I, I do think the Ravens are going to win, and I think it's going to be a little bit. Uh, I think it might be a double digit win for the Ravens. Eric, always a pleasure to talk to you, man. Thank you so much for taking some time to talk to us on a Saturday here. Absolutely, thanks, guys. All right, man. Have a good week. You too. See you. That was Eric Arditi, longtime friend of the show, joining the program here. We have got to get a break. We are running seriously behind today. And we have about a 20-minute interview with Tony Gwynn that we recorded here. I uh, just want to remind you, if you've tested positive in the last six days or have a household member or coworker who has, please go to covidplasmatrial.org. Again, covidplasmatrial.org, brought to you by Johns Hopkins University. Also want to remind you, uh, we are in the Chesapeake Employers Insurance Studio, and the bat around is brought to you by Chesapeake Employers Insurance, your workers' compensation insurance specialist. We got to get a quick break. When we come back, we're going to do a quick Orioles banter top five seasons in the franchise history. Glory Days Grill fall winter seasonal menu is now available for dine in, dine out, on the patio, or to go. It's a new season, so enjoy new flavors. Try their new shrimp appetizers, homemade meatloaf, impossible cheesesteaks, and more. They're open from 11 a.m. to 9 p.m. every day. Visit glorydaysgrill.com for a location near you. From the Glory Days Grill family, stay healthy and positive during this challenging time in our community. For more than 100 years, Chesapeake Employers Insurance has been helping Maryland businesses keep their workers safe. With competitive pricing and an AM Best, A- financial strength rating, it's no surprise that Chesapeake Employers is Maryland's largest writer of workers' comp insurance. At the end of every workday, someone's waiting for your safe return. Connect with your agent or visit CEIWC.com. If you can't be there for Baltimore football games this season, the next best thing is to at least be with each other virtually to talk about them. With Pressbox's Project Game Day, I'm Glenn Clark, and I'm with you at halftime of every game. And then I'm joined post-game by a panel of experts, including Ken Zalis and the NFL chick Sarita Hubbard. Find all shows at Facebook.com slash PressBoxSports and post-game also at PressBoxOnline.com slash radio. Come vent your frustrations, sing the praises of the purple and black, or explain why everything is just the 
ref's fault all season long. That's Press Box's Project Game Day every game day this season, brought to you by Wise Markets and the U.S. Army. If you're looking to make an impact, there's no better place to do that than the U.S. Army. Whether your goal is to fight and cure deadly diseases, develop technologies, or seek adventures across the globe, the Army is where all of that can happen, and so much more. The Army is a team of a million individuals working together to take on the most complex problems in the nation and the world, and to win. Ask yourself, what's your warrior? Go to army.com slash Baltimore to find out. To learn more, contact your local Army recruiter and find us on social media at U.S. Army Baltimore. Hey, Dad, can we try one of those hoagie things? <sighs> Sorry, son. We aren't hoagie people. What do you mean? Son, we're Royal Farms sub people, like my daddy was and his daddy before him, like you and me and all the folks we know. Gee, Dad, I never thought about it like that. So you're saying hoagie people are... Aliens, son. They're aliens. <laughs> Royal Farm subs are Baltimore's best. Real fresh, real fast. Royal Farms. The biggest pro wrestling stars today and all time all have one thing in common. You've heard them on Jobbing Out. Brent the Hitman Hart. It's good to be on the show. Adam Cole. How are you guys doing today? Matt Riddle. Yeah, man. Thanks, man. Broken Matt Hardy. Excellent. The bad guy, Scott Hall. Mm, hey, yo. Keith Lee. Appreciate you guys having me, man. Bill Goldberg. My pleasure. Charlotte. Thank you so much for having me. Mick Foley is with us. This is the greatest name for a wrestling show I've ever heard. MJF. I'm glad you're happy I'm on this show because I'm freaking miserable. Go. Le Champion! Chris Jericho. Le Champion. AJ, Aaron, Brandon, and Glenn are talking pro wrestling every week on Jobbing Out. Find it at PressBoxOnline.com slash radio, iTunes, and SoundCloud. Tired of online shopping, takeout food, and vacations by car? Then join the COVID-19 Plasma Trials, sponsored by Johns Hopkins University. You can receive plasma that contains antibodies from recovered COVID-19 patients. So if you or a loved one has just tested positive, participating in the trial could help you fight it. Join today at covidplasmatrial.org so we can all get back to boutique stores, jet setting, and not having to eat out of a cardboard box. covidplasmatrial.org. The fight starts here. Welcome back to the Battle Round. And if you stuck with us through the break, you heard the angelic voices of Glenn Clark and Kyle Ottenheimer. I want to remind you that every Monday through Friday, Glenn Clark and Kyle Ottenheimer bring their pragmatic and irreverent approach to Baltimore sports via PressBox's Glenn Clark Radio. Watch the show at Facebook.com slash PressBoxSports. Listen at PressBoxOnline.com slash radio. You never know who might pop up on GCR. This week, the guys called up with Hall of Famer Rod Woodson, Maryland football coach Mike Loxley, and five-star commit Terrence Lewis. Derek Mason, and more. Find those interviews today in the Glenn Clark Radio Week in Review feature at PressBoxOnline.com. Again, we are in the Chesapeake Employers Insurance Studio, and now it is time for one of our favorite segments, and that is Orioles Banter here on the Bataround. And we are going to rank, by our opinion, this is all objective, uh, the top five team seasons in franchise history. I'm going to start at number 5, 1971, 101 and 57, first in the AL East. Orioles lost the World Series to the Pittsburgh Pirates 4-3. to 
All you need to know about this team were the names Jim Palmer, Mike Cuellar, Dave McNally, and Pat Dobson. That foursome started all but 16 games for the Orioles in 1971 and threw all but one of the team's 71 complete games. That's not a misprint, 71 complete games. The foursome combined for 81 wins in a 289 ERA and 1,081 innings pitched, none throwing fewer than 224 innings. All four won at least 20 games, the only team in the history of baseball to accomplish that feat. The team has the best pitching in the history of the game, but the offense, though solid, simply wasn't enough. And the team lost four World Series games by the scores of 5-1, to 4-3, Four to nothing and two to one. In fact, in the last five games of that World Series, the Orioles managed to score a total of seven runs to lose the series in seven games, despite jumping out to a 2-0 series lead. It was a devastating loss, something that this franchise is all too familiar with when it comes to the Pittsburgh Pirates. I have the 1979 Orioles at my number five spot. They went 102 and 57. The Orioles lost the World Series 4-3 to the Pittsburgh Pirates. Uh, but Singleton had an absolute monster year: 295 average, 35 home runs, 938 OPS. Just absolutely monster numbers. Had him on the program a few weeks ago. Uh, uh, Eddie Murray, Gary Renicky combined for 50 more homers. Mike Flanagan won 23 games and put up a 3.08 ERA. Just some incredible years from the Orioles uh, pitching staff there. And Dennis Martinez won 15, but incredibly ended up losing 16. Uh, Don Stanhouse saves 21 games. John Lowenstein had a great season off the bench, 254 average, 11 home runs, under uh, all under Earl Weaver, you know, a legendary manager in Orioles history, 102 and 57, and lost to the Pittsburgh Pirates. At number four, 1969, 109 and 53. First in the AL East, they lost to the World the World Series to the New York Mets, four games to one. You could make the argument for this being the best Orioles team of all time if they had managed to win the World Series. But despite a team ERA of 281, four starting pitchers logging 180-plus innings, all of whom won 14 or more games, including two 20-game winners in Mike Cuellar and Dave McNally. Despite 30 homer, 100 RBI, 300 batting average seasons from Frank Robinson and Boog Powell, and a Boog, and a 2020 season from Paul Blair. Despite 109 wins, this Orioles team came up short, suffering a stunning defeat at the hands of the Miracle Mets for the one in the World Series. Arguably the best team in franchise history sits fourth on this list because they simply put, could not finish. Yeah, I had 1969 as my number four spot as well. Like you said, 109 games. That's got to be one of the best seasons of all time if they had won the World Series. Unfortunately, they didn't. But anytime you get 109 wins, that's incredibly notable. And th- th- again, we just see so many incredible players that were with the Orioles in the 60s and 70s that had such an impact on this team. I mean, Frank Robinson, only three years into coming over to the Orioles, just has another monster season, 955 OPS. It's just ridiculously good. Um, or Only Earl Weaver's second year, that was something I found really interesting, comes out and does 109 games. I think everyone knew at that point he was going to be a great manager and a legend in Orioles history. Uh, and they had a, another thing I found really interesting about this team is is Watt and Rickert had a combined 28 saves, and they both had about 14 each and were able to kind of do a duo closer role. So I thought that was pretty interesting in this 1969, but you kind of broke it down pretty pretty well for uh, this number four spot. Now, I think that our number three and number two are going to be flip-flopped. I think my number three is your number two, and your okay. number two is my number three. And number three, I have the 1970. 
Baltimore Orioles, 108 and 54, first in the AL East, World Series champions. Look, the, we just talked about the 69 Orioles. They were the best team in baseball. They won 109 games to run away with the American League pennant. Heavily favored in the World Series against the Mets. Yet five games later, Orioles watched as a miracle Mets celebrated a four games to one World Series victory for their first title in franchise history. 1970, Orioles had something to prove. Team won 108 games, led by 320 game winners in Jim Palmer, Mike Cuellar, and Dave McNally. The team threw 60 complete games. Offensively, Boog Powell was the AL MVP after slashing 297, 412, 549 with 35 homers and 114 RBIs. This a year after finishing second for the award in 1969. Team was on an absolute mission in 1970, going 7-1 in the playoffs to win their second world championship in five years. Well, I do not have that at my number three spot, like you guessed. I have the 1966 Orioles at the number three spot, 97-63, and won the World Series 4-0 over the Los Angeles Dodgers. Um, you know, another incredible season from so many of these guys I just talked about that, that built this Orioles team from the 60s and the 70s. It was the first World Series in franchise history, as you already mentioned. Uh, Frank Robinson won MVP, 7.7 war. He won the Triple Crown. This is the first year he had come over to the Orioles and completely revolutionized this team, completely changed everything that went on there. Boog Powell at 287, had a 903 OPS. The Orioles had four 10-plus game winners. Luis Aparicio logged a 4.2 glove. Uh, 4.2 war, basically just using his glove because he couldn't hit very well, which is absolutely incredible. That is one of the greatest defensive shortstop seasons of all time. And Kurt Belfry, an unheralded name, really, hit 23 home runs in left field that year. And maybe it doesn't deserve the number three spot, but I know you're going to probably have it higher. But based on the 97 wins, it, it just has to go there for me. I, I think if you have greater wins than that, it should be a little bit higher. So we'll see how the, the number two and one fold out. I understand. I get it. For number number two, for me, 1983, 98-64, Orioles were World Series champions. Um, Orioles have finished one game short of the playoffs in both 81 and 82, and have failed to reach the postseason since going to the World Series in 79 and blowing a 3-1 series lead over the Pirates, which is why they weren't on my, on my list, because you had a 3-1 lead in that 79 series and you lost. Uh, that's, to me, that's unacceptable. Um, Look, Earl Weaver, the team's manager since 1968, have retired following that 1982 season. In steps Joe Altabelli, um, famous in Baltimore because of 1983. Boy, did he inherit a team. Cal Ripken, AL Rookie of the Year in 82, won the MVP in 83, slashing 318, 371, 517, while collecting 211 hits, 47 doubles, 27 homers, and 102 RBIs. It was an 8.2 war season for Ripken, tops in the AL. Eddie Murray finished second MVP voting for the second straight season, slashing 306, 393, 538, while pounding out 33 home runs and 111 RBIs, a six-point win, a six-point-seven win campaign for Murray. Rotation won 74 games with a 371 ERA and threw 36 complete games. Now look, there were seasons in which the Orioles won more games and they had better pitching. But the importance of the 83 season can't be overstated. They came back from the adversity of missing the playoffs for three straight seasons. Came back from the adversity of blowing that 3-1 series lead to um, the Pirates in the 79 Fall Classic. Um, they missed the postseason by one game each of the previous two years. And they lose their Hall of Fame manager. Uh, it, the Orioles, they had their backs up against it. And they, they came out swinging in 83. And they won it, won it and won it all. And it was the last World Series. And it was happened a year before I was born. Damn it. <laughs> what do you got number two? 
I also have the 1983 Orioles. And just for basically all of the reasons you said, but Cal Ripken, obviously, like you said, rookie of the year, and then comes out and performs even better. 8.2 war is really, really good, and that's one of the higher shortstop wars that have ever happened. Obviously, 1991 was the highest of all time for any shortstop at 11.1, and I don't know if that's going to be broken anytime soon. Kyle Ripken starts off really his incredible run as you know one of the best shortstops of all time. Murray hit 33 homers this year. Singleton hit 18. Renneke hit 19. Just a lot of power in this lineup, of course. And like you said, just has so much sentimental value for us Orioles fans because I wasn't alive, but... You know, it's the last uh, World Series the Orioles won. Hopefully, 2023 brings us another World Series a couple years after. But, uh, you know, the Orioles, they haven't won one in a while. So you have to put the 1983 Orioles up there. Another incredible season from them. And, you know, they, they had a chance to win some in the, in the 80s and 90s, but never quite get there. Yeah, uh, you could put the 97 and 2014 Orioles up there if they yeah. managed to win the World Series. Um, unfortunately, that wasn't the case. At number one. I have 1966, 97 and 65, first in the AL East World Series champions. Look, you already you already broke down that season. It yeah. was a really good year. The reason this is number one for me, reason this is number one for me, the Orioles um, had their first winning season in franchise history in 1960. They actually won 89 games or more four times from 1960 to 1965 with an average during that six-year span of 90 wins per season. But they never won their division, and therefore never. This was before the the ALCS didn't start till 1969. So this was before you know more than one team from each league got in. Um, 90 wins per year for six years, and they never win a division. They never get to the postseason. But in the off season between 65 and 66, the Orioles trade Milpapas for who Bill DeWitt at the time called an old 30 in Frank Robinson. Um, Frank Robinson immediately comes in. AL MVP, Triple Crown, Orioles win the World Series. You mentioned with Eric Arditi, he hit that that home run for the Orioles, lone run in their one to nothing victory over Don over Don Drysdale in Game Four of the World Series, a deciding game. Look, that was that was the year that the Orioles became the Orioles. That 1966 started yeah. that dynasty. Six World Series appearances between 1966 and 1983, three World Championships. All started in 66 with Frank Robinson teaching that team how to win. A 20-year-old Jim Palmer leads the team with 15 wins. It was it was the most important World Series. Maybe not the best team, but the most important World Series in franchise history, and that's why it's number one for me. Well, if you haven't already guessed, 1970 is my number one. And for a couple of reasons here, and you already broke down most of the season, but 108 wins is just an incredible feat. We talked about uh, the 1969 Orioles not winning the World Series with 109, but 108 wins is still absolutely incredible, and they did win the World Series this time. But why this season stands out to me is because they did beat the Big Red Machine and the incredible lineup. I'm just going to read some of the names that were in this Reds lineup. We probably know a lot of them, but Johnny Bench hit 293 in 1970, 45 home runs. Tony Perez, 40 more home runs. There was a guy, Bernie Carbo had an 1,004 OPS this year. This lineup was absolutely loaded, and that's not even factoring in Lee May, hit 34 home runs. Pete Rose, you know, hit 316 in that year, doesn't hit a lot of home runs, but got a lot of hits and over 200 that year. That lineup was just so good, and I don't think a lot of people probably expected the Orioles to win over the Big Red Machine because they were just such a force. And then throughout the rest of the 1970s, so that's why that season really stands out for me. And it's really all debatable, like you said. It's not. There's no perfect science to this, but 1970 
you win 108 games, you beat one of the best teams in baseball. It's hard not to put that as the the number one season in Orioles history. Absolutely, I think we can agree that you're gonna all five teams are gonna be World Series teams. Um, for sure. Honorable mention for me was your number five, and that's the 1979 Orioles. And again, they didn't make my list because they had the opportunity to win the whole thing. You're up three games to one, and you lose three straight to lose the World Series. To me, and the fact that nobody in Baltimore can listen to We Are Family anymore because of that Pirates team, I just, I, I can't, the Orioles, you know, I love them, but... They, they shouldn't have let the Pirates do that to them. And, and so I, they, I, they have to be on the outside looking in for me. Um, Zach's going to give us a live read about the print edition, and we're going to hear from Tony Gwynn Jr., a pre-recorded interview about the Padres offseason. All right, the latest edition of Press Box is available now, and it's our very special annual Best of Issue. On the cover, we recognize our Mo Gabba, Sportsperson of the Year, who is Trey Mancini. His courageous fight against colon cancer and dedication to the community inspired us this year. We also recognize other Baltimore sports fighters, the current and former local athletes and coaches who have taken active roles in the fight against COVID-19 and for social justice. Press Box is available for free at over 500 area locations, including 60 Royal Farm stores, and you can always find the entire edition, as well as the best daily coverage of the Orioles, Ravens, and Terps at PressBoxOnline.com. All right, thank you very much. we got Tony Gwynn right now. Tony Gwynn Jr. Joining us now is the Emmy Award-winning broadcaster for Padres Radio and Fox Sports San Diego. His namesake is synonymous with San Diego baseball. He is Tony Gwynn Jr. Tony, how are you today, man? I'm well. How about yourself? We're doing well. We're doing well. Thanks for joining the program today. How are the How are the holidays for you and your family, Tony? Uh, the holidays have been well. Um, we've uh, got to enjoy each other's company, and everybody's been able to, fortunately, you know, stay stay healthy. And uh, we want to keep it that way for 2021. Absolutely, that's always the goal here, especially with the way things have been going in our in our world these past uh, several months. Now, the Padres. Yeah had themselves quite the holiday season. They were extremely active, trading for both Blake Snell and Yu Darvish and signing highly acclaimed KBO infielder Ha Sung Kim. Uh, let's start with Kim. Is the plan to evaluate him during spring training and have him start out with an affiliate, or is he actually in the mix for the opening day roster? I would definitely see think that he's in the mix for the opening day roster based on what A.J. Preller has said about him. They see him as uh, an everyday type of guy. And that came from A.J. Preller's mouth. So um, I think what you have here in San Diego is, is them trying to build a roster um, that's kind of like the Dodgers, right, where you had a bunch of Swiss Army Knife guys who are very good, play multiple positions. Um, I think that's kind of what the Padres are thinking. They're not necessarily looking at fit as opposed to looking at depth. And I think Kim gives them an opportunity to, to, to certainly add quality depth to that to that roster well yeah and you're mentioning that depth but you also mentioned that he is an everyday player in the eyes of AJ right. Preller uh, you're already set at shortstop with Tatis and you're already set at third base with Machado and Cronenworth certainly held his own at second base though some healthy competition couldn't hurt where do the Padres intend to play him is he strictly in the infield or are they going to try him out in the outfield or wherever he seems to fit you know, that's a good question. I think AJ, AJ Preller spoke about this, uh, maybe last week and, and he was talking, he was saying that, you know, they like the fact that he played all of the infield positions, never mentioned the outfield though. So I, I'm not sure exactly how to do that. I, I think to be honest, Jake Cronenworth has an ability probably to play multiple positions 
including the outfield if, if they were to ask him to. So maybe he's the guy that becomes the super utility and, and kind of plays in that Kike Hernandez role for the Padres. Hey, Tony, it's Zach Goodman. And I, I want to keep talking about A.J. Preller for a minute because he obviously likes to make a ton of big moves. He's a big trade guy, and he's trying to build this Padres roster to be the best it possibly can be. Is there a possibility that, you know, Kim were to play with the team a little bit this year and they would trade him at the end of the year for another young generational superstar like they did with the Blake Snell trade? Oh, that's the thing. is With A.J., anything is possible. I mean, I think he's proven that time and time again where, uh, he goes out, he makes different type of moves, whether it's going the free agent route. We've seen him go the international route. Now, in this, in this past six months, we've seen him very active in the trade uh, market. So I, I think anything's possible with with A.J. He, he has gotten made trades where he's flipped guys before as well. So um, I, I don't know that they necessarily see Kim in, in, that, in that light, but uh, I wouldn't put anything past A.J. I really wouldn't. Well, it certainly does make for a versatile roster to have a guy like him to join the likes of Tatis and Machado and right. Hosmer and Tommy Pham and all those great players. Now, they addressed their pitching staff. Like they, they, they traded for Mike Clevenger last year. He gave him four games. He gave him a, a, a brief appearance in the postseason. He's out for the year, going to have Tommy John surgery. Sur- surgery. Uh, Dinelson, Lamet. Uh, really kind of stepped up for that rotation. Plus, they have Chris Paddock, who had a bit of a down year after his big rookie campaign. So they go out and they trade for Blake Snell, and they trade for you, Darvish, and they add two legitimate aces to their pitching staff. What does adding guys like that to their staff do for that rosters and do for their psyche uh, going up against a team like the Dodgers year in and year out? Well, yeah, obviously the Dodgers aren't going anywhere, and you're going to have to... to try to find a way to close the gap. And I think the Padres did a good job of, of trying to close the gap on the Dodgers, and, and they did close it a little bit. Uh, I think these two moves closes that gap significantly. Now, the Dodgers are the defending champions, and it'll stay that way until somebody dethrones them. But adding a Blake Snell and a U Darvish, both guys are horses and are, as you mentioned, aces. So, um, I think it gives a lot of confidence. This team was already a pretty confident team, and that was going into a, a series with the Dodgers in the playoffs where they didn't have their two best pitchers. They were still a pretty confident bunch. So you add these guys to, to this to this uh, pitching staff, and it doesn't only give them confidence, it now gives this pitching rotation some depth. You know, one of the issues that I thought the Padres had, especially when it came to Chris Paddock, was that he was forced to pitch. I mean, he was an opening day starter for the Padres last year. He gets to slide into a four slot. And I like uh, a third-year Chris Paddock going up against number fours across the league as opposed to having him in that that number one slot where he's going up against aces every start. I think everybody slots into a better spot and it makes this Padre team a, a really a really dangerous team. Well, it certainly should have a trickle-down effect in that rotation to add pitchers the likes of Snell and Darvish. However, we watch Snell. And we saw him get taken out early in uh, Game yeah. 6 of the World Series. But he threw just 50 innings in 11 regular season starts. Now, some of that's analytics, and some of that was an inability to be efficient with his pitches. Are the Padres at all concerned with Snell's recent inability to pitch deep into games? No, I don't think so. I think they view this from a lens of uh, he's going to be given an opportunity to do that more often than maybe he was in Tampa. And I think when you have a combination of a team that's willing to give the opportunity and a guy that's trying to prove 
that to show everybody that that's certainly what he's capable of doing on a consistent basis. I think it makes for a good formula. Um, I, I know he, there has been a lot of talk about the, uh, the efficiency after he gets uh, deeper into games and, 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 and what he may need to improve on, but he's certainly going to be given the opportunity uh, in San Diego. I'm one of those guys who I firmly believe that he was uh, handcuffed in Tampa Bay. No, no and, doubt. And I yeah. think that him coming to San Diego, pitching in bigger ballparks, pitching in the National League, I think he's going to be a Cy Young front runner again. And I think that's a really great get for the Padres. Now, Darvish finished second in the Cy Young award voting, had a 201 ERA, led the National League with eight wins. He's the all time record holder for strikeouts per nine innings amongst starting pitchers in the history of the game. However, he himself has had past health issues. We know he had Tommy John surgery. He had a stress reaction in his right elbow that limited him to eight starts in 2018. Really took him till 2020 to round back into the form that made him such a high, um, high caliber guy for the Rangers when they signed him out right. of uh, Japan. Are the Padres at all concerned about his injury history, or do they think that he's fully recovered from all of those things and he's ready to go out there and give them 200 innings? I mean, I think ultimately AJ's probably more comfortable from you, Darvish, because they, they have a past relationship. So I think the Padres are, um, aren't worried about it very much. I mean, for, for 2019 and 20, uh, he was healthy. Uh, and he, as you mentioned, he started rounding back into shape that Cy Young's uh, uh, award type pitching when he, this past season. So uh, I think the Padres are, are really excited to have him. He, he kind of has been the forgotten trade. I mean, everybody in San Diego has been so focused on Blake Snell because they saw him in a World Series pitching terrific the last time they saw him. But you, Darvis, as you mentioned, uh, was the only one really close to Trevor Bauer uh, in terms of that Cy Young. And um, I, I just think he's so talented and for so long, and he has had uh, uh, so many different pitches. It just seems like in the last couple of years, he's kind of settled in on about four or five that he likes to go to, and it's, it's made him more efficient, it seems like. And obviously him being healthy has, has played a big part in, in the way he's pitched too. So, Tony, you mentioned that Jace Tingler may handle these pitchers a little bit different than their previous managers had handled them in the past. But I also want to talk about Jace Tingler's overall record. He's now 37 wins in his first year in 2020. But how did the management and A.J. Preller view Jace Tingler in his first season, and do they expect him to be the one to lead the Padres to the World Series? I'm assuming that would be the case. I I, I think they do. I think, uh, again, AJ and Jace seem to have be on the same page, and 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 generally, when organizations have that kind of fluidity between front office and, and the staff on the field to combine with talent, it usually brings a good mix. And uh, I thought Jace was terrific in his in his first year as manager. Uh, I, 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 you almost forgot, you know that he was a first-year manager if you watched him on a consistent basis as I did. I mean, there wasn't very – he's one of the most prepared people that you're going to come across, um, and, and he, he he leans on his staff around him, and I think that uh, may cover up maybe some of the, the, the things that he doesn't do well. He, he can cover that up with the staff, the terrific staff he has around him, and I think the Padres love what they saw from him. And more importantly, I think the players. Uh, the players really – uh, bought into to his philosophy, and that's the most important thing when it gets down to brass tacks. 
Well, certainly he inherited a talented roster, and right in the middle of that roster is Manny Machado. And we in Baltimore, I think I speak for a lot of Orioles fans when I say that we miss the hell out of Manny Machado here (laughs) in Baltimore. Now, he signs a huge 10-year, $300 million contract with the Padres prior to the 2019 season. and goes on, he hits over 30 homers, drives in over 80, but the batting average wasn't where you wanted it to be. And it seemed like he was kind of pressing after signing such a huge contract. But then 2020, you know, all the restraints come off, and then he goes out there and, and puts up an MVP caliber season. What does him returning to that MVP form do for that lineup, uh, not just now, but moving forward? I mean, I think we saw the evidence of it last year. I mean, Padres were a top three offense in the league last year. It's hard to remember the last time you could say that about a Padres team. Uh, him, it just, it, when you watch Manny from, from 19 to 20, I think it was apparent he was just more comfortable uh, in year number two. And I think most guys who sign big deals like that have a tendency to press, and if it doesn't get out the gates well – uh, they press more, and you saw that from Manny. And, and, and you brought up a point that I, I think needs to be kind of highlighted. Yes, his average dropped a little bit, but his numbers were right around his averages pretty much uh, across the board. And that is a, a luxury of having a player like Manny. He has a bad year. He's still good for 30 and 82 or whatever it was. Uh, but seeing him last year, uh, there was no doubt he was more comfortable um, and – I think he has kind of turned into uh, one of the leaders, like one of the vocal leaders on this team. I think he was a leader in his first year, but when you're trying to fill out a new process on your own, it's hard to kind of lead guys. Uh, I think you really saw that in, in 2020, him with his being more comfortable with the organization, the guys around him, he really stepped into that leadership role. Yeah, and, and it's it's certainly easier to have a good season and get more comfortable when you have a co-MVP caliber player next year, right. Fernando Tatis. Now, the Padres, they have all these players in the top 100 prospects, so they were willing to part with some of these prospects to make these trades for Snell and for Darvish. Uh, namely, Luis Patino uh, went to the, the Rays for Snell. What are the Padres losing by losing a guy like Luis Patino? I think they're getting, they're they're losing a guy that is is going to has the the chance to be a front end starter. Like he he got better as the season went along. He got more confidence um, as he learns how to command the baseball. He, he's going to be tough. He's, he, they're getting a really good a really good pitcher. I think that uh, you know clearly having him up at the big league level last year and uh, really having other teams being able to see him really brought some value to the Padres. Because I think if the year started uh, at the beginning of that year, most people would have anticipated Mackenzie Gore would have been a guy that would have been in Patino's role. But Patino was the first one to reach. Uh, he struggled out the gate, but he got better. He really did. He got better as the season went along. I think uh, the Rays are going to be very happy with Patino, um, especially when you look at their track record of how they've been able to, to kind of cultivate starting pitching there. Now, with that Cubs deal to get Darvish, they sent over Owen Casey, uh, Reggie Preciado, Ismail Mania, and uh, Yasan Santana. Of those guys, are there any of those? Uh, were any of those guys guys that you looked at and you said, "Man, I wish he hadn't been included in that deal"? Yeah, t- to be honest, no. Um, and that was what the brilliance of these deals were for AJ. He, he didn't even touch his top five prospects in, in any of these deals. So, although he gave up some prospects the cupboards aren't bare there's still a lot of guys coming and 
these guys are all at the beginning, maybe with the exception of Owens, they're all at the very early stages of their career. And uh, there, there's obviously a bit of forecasting when you're talking about the, the, the young guys that went over in that trade. But uh, I think, as I said, the beauty in those trades is that these guys aren't, they weren't the highly touted guys in this organization. Uh, but if you force me to pick one that I think uh, is going to make a difference, it's going to be Owens. Yeah, uh, I I don't know much about their prospects. I just know that they sent a lot. But I also know that the main guy um, that was in that deal was Zach Davies. And Zach Davies is a guy right, that, that right. was drafted by Baltimore. Uh, he got traded over to the Brewers in the Gerardo Parra trade in 2015. It did not work out for Baltimore. And then we've watched him really round into a high-quality pitcher at the major league level. Uh, however... Zach Davies is always a guy who seemed to be undervalued due to his weak peripherals, below average K percentage, low velo on his fastball, his overall size is not a big dude, six foot one fifty five. How has he maintained success? He had a, a breakout. I mean, for a guy whose ERA has been sub four or five of his six years, he had a breakout right. year in twenty twenty with a K rate about twenty two percent. How has he flown under the radar? He knows how to pitch. He knows how to pitch, and he. Out of all the guys, maybe aside from Denelson Lamed, he was the funnest to watch go to work every fifth day. Um, you're right. He doesn't have velocity. You know, he, he's not blowing guys away, but he's just old school pitching. Keeps the ball down. He can command all his pitches, and he makes you put the ball in play. And, and if occasionally, you mentioned him having a, a higher uh, strikeout percentage, I mean, he he'll take last year he was really good at, at at raising the zone on guys, but he pitches and uh when you get a guy like that who can pitch when he's healthy, Zach is, is a lot of fun to watch play watch pitch and uh he certainly is a, a last of a dying breed in, in our game now. But I think the Orioles are gonna get a guy that, that can really uh excuse me, the Orioles <laughs> the Cubs are gonna get a guy that um, can pitch. They have some guys like that in their organization. Uh, Hendricks is one of them. So uh, they're getting a quality start. He was at one point was kind of the anchor uh, on this Padre team yeah. before Denelson Lamet really started getting going. Yeah, so we know that the Padres really upgraded their rotation. They've upgraded multiple parts of their team now, but one part they really need to help out is the bullpen, and A.J. Preller has already said that's a priority for them. And Kirby Yates is a guy who was an all-star in 2019 with the Padres. He was finished ninth in Cy Young voting, so didn't have a great 2020, but is there any chance Kirby Yates could be brought back for the Padres to really help out that bullpen? I think there's absolutely a chance that he can get brought back. And the Padres want to address that they got they like some of the arms in their organization i know uh jose castillo who's been hurt over the last few years lefty hard throwing lefty they like him a lot and if he can get back to being healthy he's an arm that i don't think they anticipated having uh but certainly kirby Yates, from what i've been what i've read is, is he's on the, he's on the radar he has a chance uh, to uh possibly come back here uh, and the Padres probably will get him at a discounted rate because he's coming off an injury. Now, another team, uh, I'm sorry, excuse me, another uh, another couple of guys who are out there who could really help the Padres. You have Brad Hand, you have Liam Hendricks. Uh, Liam Hendricks getting a lot of interest uh, from the Dodgers and also from the White Sox, who are kind of like the Padres of the American League. Um, could you see the Padres making a run at a Brad Hand or a Liam Hendricks, especially in Hendricks' case, to keep him away from the Dodgers? 
Yeah, you, you know, I don't know that the Padres are necessarily looking to to keep guys away. Um, especially those guys are gonna they're gonna cost you a little bit. Uh, uh, Hendricks one of the better back end guys. The Padres are very familiar with Brand, and he's been one of the most consistent back end guys. So I just think the Padres have always seemingly been a little reluctant spending a lot of money on closers. You know, we know how volatile they are in the game. So I, I, I guess. The, if the price is right, of course, the, the Padres are going to be injured. AJ is never one to not explore something. But uh, that being said, I don't see it being likely that they go that route. Uh, I, I see it being more likely that they, they try to bring back Kirby Gates. Understandable. Now, at the beginning of the segment, you, you mentioned that these moves that the Padres have made over the last few weeks kind of gets them, really helps them keep pace pretty well with the Dodgers. Yeah. Uh, in your mind, have they done enough? with these three moves or do they need to do something else to kind of get them to that next level? I think they've done enough for now. Um, I think uh, the beauty about this is this is all before we've ever played a game. Um, so you get out there, you see how your team lad- lines up. You have a deadline that you'll be able to address things again. And a lot of times uh, things can, you can maybe possibly get uh, uh, guys who you're not necessarily thinking about right now being available all of a sudden, become available by the deadline. So I think the Padres have certainly done enough at this point uh, to go on the season and feel pretty confident. Now, should they get into the season and feel like they need to address things, I think uh, the Padres won't, won't hesitate to do something if they feel the need that, that it can help. But I think as of now, I think they're in a good spot. Yeah, I think they're in a good spot, too. I'll tell you, Tony, I became a Padres fan the second Manny Machado signed there. So I'm, I'm, I'm pulling for the Padres. I'm rooting for them. I was rooting for them. At, and I'm, I, I, you know, not to put myself out there with you, but I do like the Dodgers. But I found myself rooting yeah. for the Padres against the Dodgers in the postseason this year. So we're pulling for them over here. Tony, we're going to let you go, but we really appreciate you joining the program and giving us some time here on a Thursday afternoon. No problem. You guys enjoy the rest of your day. All right, man. Thank you so much. Have a great day. All right, that was Tony Gwynn Jr. kind enough to pre-record with us on Thursday uh, talk about the Padres offseason. Before we get our third and final break, uh, Zach wants to help us pay some bills. All right, if you can't be there for Baltimore football games this season, the next best thing is to at least be with each other to virtually to talk about them. With PressBox's Project Game Day, Glenn Clark is with you at halftime of every game, and he's joined postgame by a panel of experts, which will include Ken Zalas and the NFL chick, Saria Hubbard. Find all shows at Facebook.com slash PressBoxSports and postgame at PressBoxOnline.com slash radio. Come vent your frustrations, sing the praises of the purple and black, or explain why everything is the ref's fault all season long. Glenn and Rita will be with you for the Baltimore-Tennessee wildcard playoff battle tomorrow. That's the Press Box Project Game Day. Every game day this season brought to you by Wise Markets and the U.S. Army. Just a reminder, once again, if you have tested positive in the last six days or have a household member or co-worker who has, please go to covidplasmatrial.org. Again, covidplasmatrial.org, brought to you by Johns Hopkins University. Going to get our final break, then we'll come back and close the show with a little bit of Ravens-Titans preview. 
C3 American Exteriors is the area's best and most trusted roof and siding specialists. C3 is also an insurance adjuster's worst nightmare and a homeowner's dream come true. With all of the bad weather, chances are you have some roof and siding damage. Call C3 American Exteriors now to get your roof and siding repairs for the cost of your deductible. Don't let the insurance industry get one over on you. C3 guarantees a 48-hour rapid response. Call 401 797 or go to c3america.com for a free analysis. Since masks are a part of our lives now and probably will be for a while, we might as well wear masks that celebrate our hometown and the teams and athletes we love. Pressbox is offering three different types of masks, including a purple and orange Maryland flag pattern 20-inch neck gaiter, plus a Celebrate 8 purple neck gaiter honoring the MVP quarterback, and an over-the-ear two-ply Maryland flag mask featuring a faded version of the iconic state flag. These are decorative masks. They're not CDC approved, but they are perfect for hanging out and watching games this fall while supporting your favorite teams and being respectful of those around you. Get your masks right now at PressBoxOnline.com masks. That's PressBoxOnline.com masks to get yours now. If you're looking to make an impact, there's no better place to do that than the U.S. Army. Whether your goal is to fight and cure deadly diseases, develop technologies, or seek adventures across the globe, the Army is where all of that can happen and so much more. The Army is a team of a million individuals working together to take on the most complex problems in the nation and the world and to win. Ask yourself, what's your warrior? Go to army.com slash Baltimore to find out. To learn more, contact your local Army recruiter and find us on social media at U.S. Army Baltimore. Hey, Dad, can we try one of those hoagie things? (laughs) Sorry, son. We aren't hoagie people. What do you mean? Son... We're Royal Farms sub-people, like my daddy was, and his daddy before him, like you and me, and all the folks we know. Gee, Dad, I never thought about it like that. So you're saying hoagie people are... Aliens, son. They're aliens. (laughs) Royal Farms subs are Baltimore's best. Real fresh, real fast, Royal Farms. For more than 100 years, Chesapeake Employers Insurance has been helping Maryland businesses keep their workers safe. With competitive pricing and an AM Best, A-minus financial strength rating, it's no surprise that Chesapeake Employers is Maryland's largest writer of workers' comp insurance. At the end of every workday, someone's waiting for your safe return. Connect with your agent or visit CEIWC.com. The latest edition of Press Box is available now, and it's our very special annual Best of Issue. On the cover, we recognize our Mo Gabba Sports Person of the Year, Trey Mancini, whose courageous fight against colon cancer and dedication to the community inspired us this year. We also recognize other Baltimore sports fighters, the current and former local athletes and coaches who have taken active roles in the fight against COVID-19 and for social justice. Press Box is available for free at over 500 area locations including 60 Royal Farm stores. And you can always find the entire edition as well as the best daily coverage of the Orioles, Ravens, and Terps at PressBoxOnline.com. Best theme music possible. Glenn Clark Radio theme music to close out the show as always here on the Bat Around. 
Since masks are a part of our lives now and probably will be for a while, we might as well wear masks to celebrate our hometown team and the teams and athletes we love. PressBox is offering three different types of home team masks, including a purple and orange Maryland flag patterned 20-inch neck gaiter that the lovely Zach is modeling beautifully for us right now, uh, plus a Celebrate 8 purple neck gaiter honoring the MVP quarterback, and an over-the-ear two-ply Maryland flag mask featuring a faded version of the iconic state flag. These are decorative masks, not CDC-approved, but they are perfect for hanging out and watching games this fan this fan this fall while supporting your teams and being respectful of those around you get your masks right now at pressboxonline.com slash masks that's pressboxonline.com slash masks to get yours now Thanks for bearing with us here on the Bat Around Us. We've run a little bit long today. We had a lot of guests with a lot of a lot to say. That's never a bad thing, and we don't have any programming after us. So if we want to run long, that is our prerogative. Uh, look, that's going to do it for the baseball portion of this show. But we are briefly going to talk about this Ravens-Titans matchup tomorrow. A big revenge game for the Ravens. Lamar Jackson 0-2 in his career in his playoff career, um, including that 28-12 loss where he put up 508 yards of total offense himself but came up short against these very same Tennessee Titans. Zach, what are you looking for from this game? Well, I think the Ravens need to build on what they did in that Week 11 matchup because I think they did a lot of good things that were a lot better, certainly, than what they did in the playoff loss in 2019. So, a lot of those things were run blitzes. You know, if you can get as many guys to the line of scrimmage to stop Derrick Henry as possible, that's important. You know, another thing is making sure you're you're watching out for play action. You've got to be you've got to be aware that the Titans are going to do that a lot. They're so good at it. AJ Brown, Corey Davis can stretch the field really quickly and get down on you. So you've got to have a single high safety back there to make sure you can take that away. Because you're going to run blitz, you're going to take these corners like Marlon Humphrey and Marcus Peters off the edge to try to stop Derrick Henry. So it's a dangerous game to do these kind of things, but that's how you got to win against the Titans, and that's what the Ravens did in Week 11. And to be perfectly honest, they bottled up Derrick Henry through the first half. I think he had something like 12 carries for 30 yards or somewhere around there. So he exploded in the second half, but the Ravens are a lot healthier on that defensive line. Calais Campbell, Brandon Williams... Last uh, last week it was or the last matchup it was Justin Ellis and Derek Wolf so a clear downgrade from two of the best run stuffers in the NFL so if they keep doing what they were able to accomplish in Week 11 and they build on that and the offense doesn't turn the ball over and doesn't make mistakes which is a hard ask they're gonna be fine I think they will win this game if they do that yeah I remember the game in Week 11 and. The Ravens were up big. I think at this point it's twenty-one to ten. Twenty-one to ten was the, and, and the best lead. They're up twenty-one to ten in the third quarter, and Lamar throws a deep pass in a double coverage that he doesn't need to throw. He underthrows Duvernay. The ball gets picked off, and I remember saying, "You didn't need that." And at the time, I even said, "You didn't need that," but I get it, and I'm not mad about it. In hindsight, I'm mad about it because that changed the game. You know the, the sure. Ravens. The Ravens control the ball a little bit more there. They go down and score even a field goal. The Ravens win that football game. Instead, they're on the outside looking in. They they lose a football game in overtime on the walk off by Derrick Henry. With that in mind, what's your prediction for this game? Uh, I'm going to go with 34 to 31 Baltimore. I think it's going to be a close game, hard fought between two of the best running football teams in the game. So you know it is going to be high scoring. These teams score a lot of points. Both defenses struggle against these. Uh, you know, these two teams. So it's going to be a high-scoring game, in my opinion, but I will pick the hometown Ravens. I got the Ravens winning 41-24. to 41-24, look, you can't stop Derrick Henry. You can only look to contain him. Right. 
but he can't hurt you if he's not on the field. And I expect the Ravens to run the ball 40 times. I expect them to control the clock. I'm looking at about a 38-22 to 22 margin um, of, of time of possession for the Ravens. Um, no worse than 35-25. to 25. I think the Ravens need to control the ball. But more importantly, I think Lamar is going to put this team on his back. I think he's going to be far and away the best player on the field tomorrow afternoon. And I think that you're looking at maybe not 508 yards, but I think you're looking at about 100 on the ground, another 200 in the air against a really weak pass defense by the Tennessee Titans. I look for the Ravens to rush for close to 250 again uh, in this game. And again, I think the Ravens win this game by 17 points. It'll be close at halftime, but yeah. I think the Ravens will run the ball right down their throats the entire second half and pull away for a, a, a three-score win. Yeah, I have a key to the game for the Ravens. This is one thing they failed to stop against a lot of teams, and Tennessee loves to run it, and it's read option. The Ravens do read option better than any other team on offense, but they've never been able to stop read option on defense. And when Tennessee gets in the red zone, they score a lot with read option because everyone's going to, you know, everyone's looking at Derrick Henry. Everyone commits to Derrick Henry. Tannehill walks in. You've got to watch out for read option on Sunday. That's one of the biggest things for the Ravens. Yeah, that and they have a hard time against the screen. Yeah, well. absolutely, so, for sure. Need Calais Campbell and Brandon Williams have big games. You need Patrick Queen to step up here. And I think that the, the Ravens are fully as healthy as they're going to get. This year, the guys yep. who are out for the year, they ain't coming back. But their Ravens are as healthy as as they're going to get this year, and I think it bodes well for them. I think Lamar gets the monkey off his back and gets that first playoff win yep. uh, tomorrow, one hundred five. That's going to do it for us here on the Battleground. Uh, thanks again to our guests, Stan the Fan, Charles, Tony Gwynn Jr., and Eric R. Didi. Baltimore, be safe, be healthy, be well. Go Ravens. We'll talk to you next week. See ya.